Hello everyone, welcome to episode 49 of Realm and Ruin, a Warhammer podcast. A podcast that is so Warhammer that we get plus 20 attacks in the podcast doctrine. Yes. Uh, oh God! <laughs> and I was being, I was being, you know, calm on that. Twenty attacks. We, yeah. we deserve more. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm your host, Matt, and joining me as always, a guy so humble that he's had his head chopped off and reattached three times, but he doesn't brag about it. It's Cameron. How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing great. Listen, I was blessed genetically with a very, very strong neck. And also incredible regenerative superpowers. Uh, <laughs> it's me. This is my life. I'm Gazgul Maguruk Thraka, the Iron Orc. It's okay. I'm going to get through this. <laughs> and soon you're going to be here with in plastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah next week. Coming yeah. out. Or roughly when this episode is released, presumably. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, here we are. 49. Almost at the big 50. That's quite scary. Mm. And, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So we are, we're here. We're, we're doing okay. So, and hope everyone out there, you're doing okay too. There's obviously the mm. uncertainty and uh, craziness of the world at the moment. So, you know, mm. hopefully yeah. this is reaching you and hopefully you're all doing okay. Um, yeah. So, Absolutely. but, you know, we're going to keep going. Um, I suppose, yeah. you know, the advantage of, you know, this sort of situation for us personally is it doesn't stop us, you know, recording at the oh, moment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't give you anything from all the way down here. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, we're definitely doing social distancing at the moment. Oh, yeah. Keep, <laughs> Very remember, much keep so. a minimum of, keep a minimum of 15,000 kilometers between exactly. you and your close friend. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, like I said, hope you're all doing okay and keeping well. And, um, mm. but like I said, we'll, you know, keep going with this, uh, during this, you know, unknown period, and you know the good thing is, you know, look at the advantages. You get to listen to all our stuff because you've really got no excuse now. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, what are we doing today? Right. So as always, we'll get on to all the hobby stuff, which you know should be a fair amount because again, because of time, and mm. um, we'll yes. see what news has been going on. There's uh, there's a fair little bit, and then the main law topic for this episode will be all the law from the fresh off the press. Fresh from the jungle, uh, Seraphon Battletone. Um, and unfortunately, probably for the third episode in a row, there will be no discussion topic because, yeah, uh, you know, just it's going to be. We get meaty episodes, it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just one of those things where we, we've covered a battle time today. We're going to be, you know, we did Codex last time and then it was our anniversary. It's just the way things have gone. Oh, but yeah. don't worry, we're yeah, not, we're not yeah. removing them. It's just the way. Uh, we've covered certain things recently, so, but yeah, that's the plan for this episode. Uh, and as always, you can see how you can support the show and all our social media gubbins is in the show notes as always down in your podcast player of choice. Uh, one thing I will definitely plug as I always do anyway, but particularly at this time is obviously our lovely discord server, um, which you can obviously join for free. Come along. There's lovely, gorgeous people on there that like to talk Warhammer and obviously a variety of subjects as well. But obviously particularly in these, in these times, uh, with the coronavirus where people are self isolating and you know, you want people to talk to or other people to talk to, especially about Warhammer, then again, it's Mm. a great place to, to come along. I mean, for example, last yeah. night, um, for us in the UK and America, because of 
time zones obviously we had a like a saturday night or saturday afternoon for some people a uh, voice chat it was about i said about eight or nine of us chatting away and it was really good it was just a you know a real good thing we some of the guys were doing hobby stuff as we were talking i was getting my notes ready for this recording and you know and we just you know just spoke about various stuff really so it was a really good little yeah. thing to do and we're going to yeah. try and hopefully make it a semi-regular thing you know depending on what people want to do so if you want in yeah. on that go check the link to our discord server thank you very much right okay next uh is again talking to discord if you're on there you can ask us a question and this mm-hmm. is the question for this episode this comes from chris uh in brackets legio arctos um i spoke to him again last night in the voice chat i got to speak to him and his question <clears> is <throat> is there an ip you wish gw would make the miniatures game version of Ooh. yeah that's Ooh. a hell of a question isn't it i mean obviously yeah. we know they dabble in other things like you know lord of the rings mm. hobbit for example yeah. is a perfect yeah. Uh, yeah. example of what they do which is not necessarily warhammer um mm. I, I again i will go first probably just to give you time to yeah <laughs> thank you have a think you. about that <laughs> um you're right uh, uh, right let's have a think right so i'm thinking uh, especially quite well, I say topical because it's on Netflix recently. The Witcher would be, mm. uh, I think, a very good choice for them. Yeah. Um, I would like them to do a Warhammer Quest style game based mm. on The Witcher. Mm. So you play as The Witcher, or you can play, obviously, as someone like Siri or Yennefer, for example. And it, you know, the models would be fantastic if you know going and buy you know the standard that GW you do it could come with you know obviously all the various monsters that or a collection of monsters i mean imagine them doing a lesion for example which is a mm, the sort of forest yeah. you know antler creature type thing that you see in the video game and and such like um that would be amazing you know they, they see what they do with the uh Silverneth. it's you know it would mm, they're made to yeah. do stuff like that so and again you could add expansions to it um yeah i, I couldn't see it as a skirmish game like in a sort of a mm like similar to Lord of the Rings. So I don't think that would work. It may do, yeah. but I don't think, I think it'd be better in a Warhammer quest style. Um, what else? Uh, Alien. I would like them to do. Um, mm, that'd be yeah. quite cool. That, that could be in again, in a skirmish style game. You could have obviously Marines versus alien or versus a Xenomorph. Yeah. So, you know, you see what yeah. they do with the Tyranids, you know, again, they do some awesome mm. stuff for them. So I think that could work. Um, you could do something really random like uh near automata, um if you're uh familiar yeah, with that yeah. uh, video game <laughs> again that would be very i don't know what what type of style game i'd want that to be um but you know again that could work with the especially with the, imagine them doing the robots you know the androids as well yeah. you know the ones yeah. in the forest um mm, that'd be really cool definitely. um yeah yeah i mean i i mean to be obviously with a lot of these ips some of them do already do have miniatures games because obviously other companies mm. do them but yeah. uh, so we'll yeah. you know Put that aside, um, Cameron's any any uh, yeah you can think of. Um, well, right off the top of my head, it's relevant because of the rough date that we're recording. But I would like to see them do a Doom game mm. Uh, mm. because I I reckon they could do all the demons real justice in yep. plastic. They would be very cool. Um, it could be. 
I think it could be fun as almost like the Dark Souls, the board game style mm-hmm. kind of game where instead of everyone controlling a random marine or the Doom Slayer or whatever, you play as a bunch of demons and you do the Dark Souls, because the Dark Souls board game has like these big boss fights is like the key part of it as you explore around, and I imagine just walking into a room as, you know, a Kaka demon, a Revenant, and a couple of other demons, and then there's just the Doom Slayer. <laughs> as, like, as, like, this automatically AI-controlled kind of thing would be pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think that'd the, be great. I was um, going to say, there's actually a, um, a miniatures game of Doom, um, a sort oh, of... Really? A, well, it's a it's more... It's sort of a board game with miniatures, which had okay. the, yeah. the 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 um, the Slayer and obviously the demons. Um, it was done by Fantasy Flight Games. Oh, that's um, cool. You obviously do lots Didn't of even know. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> check it out. It was out a few years yeah. ago, I think. So, okay. yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other things off the top of my head. Uh, I think Halo would be pretty good for it, honestly, because mm. you got two two clear factions. You got oh three clear really because you got Covenant, Flood, and the uh, UNSC. Yep. And yeah, they they I feel they could do good with that again. Like it falls in their range because you'd have the hu- regular humans plus superhuman soldiers faction with UNSC. You'd have all the cool alien stuff with the uh, the Covenant and all the various alien species and that. And then of course yeah. the Flood lets them do all kinds of crazy warped terrifying nonsense as they do yeah, with nurgle stuff, chaos stuff. <laughs> yeah no chaos stuff in general but nurgle stuff in particular yeah mm. absolutely i mm. think that'd be cool yeah um yeah and uh a final sort of sort of really personal heartfelt choice i would like them to do sort of like i'm not sure what style of game it would be but i'd love to see them produce miniatures for the aragon books okay um yeah because i love those books as a kid um, Does that involve the dragons and such like? Yeah, yeah, got one really, really shitty movie adaptation, and that kind of <laughs> killed any chances of that. But like, the books themselves were, I felt at the time at least, pretty good. And they had lots of interesting stuff and interesting descriptions of things. Like, there were dragons, of course, but like, um, instead of orcs, you had the Urgals, who were like guys with big horns, and they have their very unique culture and very unique style of dress and everything. And I think it'd be cool to see, like, I don't know what even kind of game it would be, but. I know they can do cool dragon minis, and I know they can mm-hmm. do cool, like, beast men style minis and cool human minis. I think they could do really well with something like that. Yeah. 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 It probably cool. probably won't ever get the traction, seeing as the books are long since done and nothing <laughs> else has really come out of them ever since, but you never know. <laughs> yeah. No, that sounds cool. I, I, I'm unfortunately on, on that IP. I don't, I think I remember there being a film. That's why I thought, oh, it was mm. a film with dragons, wasn't it? But yeah. 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 I don't know anything more than that, so. Um, so yeah okay cool okay well that's that's the thing there's i think we're going to see more of this in general there's so many not necessarily obviously gw but there's so many ips that are getting turned into you know miniature Mm. games now because you know harry potter has has had in recent times as well um uh, you know and obviously many many more as well and uh, you know i think that as sort of these IPs get bigger, obviously, especially when they're based around books or video games or movies, and then, mm. you know, knowing that board games slash wargaming or skirmish gaming is, you know, getting very much more popular than it was, you know, I think we're going to see more of this. So, yeah, hopefully some of these, mm. even if it's not obviously GW, because obviously they're a bit, you know, picky what yeah. they do, I would like to see these games, you know, done in, you know, from other con- um, other countries, other uh, companies as well. So, <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. But no, mm. cool ideas there. Yeah. Right. Nice. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris, for your <laughs> question. 
No uh, right, let's get stuck into the hobby section. Like I said, hopefully we've mm. been keeping our sales busy, because I think we have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> time, time for that now. <laughs> right, Ooh. okay. So, Cameron, let me have it. What have you been up to yeah. the last couple of weeks, mate? Okay. Um, I've been up to an extremely large amount of stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not, not necessarily because of any shutdowns or anything, but because I got my first actual paycheck of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, um, just, what's the date today? It's the 22nd. Uh, just over a week ago, uh, I got my first proper paycheck of the year. So I've done a lot over the last week. Um, but just before that also did a fair bit. Um, so the first thing that happened is, uh, I think I mentioned last time that I ordered a roll maker from Green Stuff World yeah. with a couple of paintbrushes. Yeah. Uh, so that arrived a couple of weeks ago, right before our last episode actually released. Um, oh, a week ago, I should say. Oh, right before our last episode released. Um, and dear God, I don't know how I ever lived without this tool. Um, <laughs> if you are at all interested in doing ad mech, chaos, vehicles of any kind, dark mechanicus, anything involving tubes or tentacles, you should really get one of these. Mm. They're so good. Oh my God. This, it's so good. Um, I did. Basically, almost all the cabling for the the top of my night rampager in about five minutes flat with wow. no prior experience with the tool, and I'm super super happy with how it turned out. Like uh, now, I could probably do it a little better because I've been practicing with it. But honestly, it's all there. It all looks good. I'm happy not to pull it off and try again. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a really simple tool. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a series of plastic plates, uh, like little square plates is the only way to say it really uh the underside is completely smooth and the top side has even ridges all across it and essentially by laying a little rolled out tube of putty on top of one of these and then rubbing the ridged side of another one over it you can imprint uh patterns onto the little tube uh generally making it look like some kind of cabling or perhaps a tentacle or a tendril uh and because there's different thicknesses and frequencies of ridges on the various plates and because you can do them all at different angles to each other so you can have them so that they're facing the same way or facing uh perpendicular to each other or at a diagonal to each other uh the potential is pretty endless like if you do it diagonally you can create a rope it looks like because it looks like mm. a curled uh curling rope pattern uh if you do them perpendicular so you've got one set going horizontal one set going vertical you can do it looks like a cable made out of little squares protruding from it. It looks really weird and sort of mechanically, mechanicacy. Um, there's all, ki- there's all kinds of great stuff. I've mostly been doing, uh, tubing that has like a big lump and then two little lumps and a big lump and two little lumps by using a smaller ridge one with a larger ridge one. And it's just come out super fucking well. It's so cool. <laughs> uh, it's so easy to use. Um, as long as you remember to keep it like lubricated with water or Vaseline, nothing's going to stick to it. Uh, and you can use the flat size to like roll out the tubes really evenly as well. So like before you get that or to erase any uh, previous indentations on them. If you just gently roll them with the flat sides, uh, it will smooth them back out and you can try again. Uh, so it's a really, really good tool. Uh, mm. It's not expensive. Uh, it does have to come from Spain. Um, so mine didn't actually take too long to get here. Uh the tracking said it got to an international distribution center and then just never updated it, but it turned up a couple of days later at my door. And <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on there, but I'll Beautiful. take it. Um, yeah. 
Uh, so definitely, if you're interested in any kind of mechanical sculpting, order one. They're so good, you will not be disappointed. They're fun to play around with, they're easy to use, they're easy to keep clean. Um, yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's <Cool>. so good. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. I mean, I must admit, I saw when I saw the photos, I was mm. actually dumbfounded by when you were like, well, this took me five minutes. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, you know what? Three of that five minutes was watching the tutorial video just to know how to actually use the tank thing. <laughs> and then I just got like, I got like five little rolled out bits of green stuff, went chicka, chicka, chicka. Cool. One done. Chicka, chicka, chicka. Did all the others and then just. <laughs> And then as long as you're not squeezing them hard, you can gently manipulate them into place without leaving fingerprints and stuff. And it's super easy. It's really good. Or you can let them dry for a bit so they're not quite set and then they're easier to manipulate. Um, but I, I wanted these to look like they were falling into place and sort of, you know, de-energized and things like this is a stagnasis engine. It's not meant to be like vibrating and humming with power all the time. It's like sucking stuff away. So I was happy to let them sort of fall into place as long Mm -hmm. as they were connecting at either end. Um, Yeah, no, it's a great tool. It's really cool. (laughs) Um, And hey, I was thinking of sometime this year doing some Dark Mechanica stuff. That just got a hell of a lot easier to do. Um, <laughs> That's so. bumped up the uh, priority list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, hey, bring bring out Mortal Realms here. I'll buy 50 Chain Rasps to turn into Dark Skitari. I'll do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I have the power now. I just need a lot more green stuff. I need to buy more green stuff. I've used <laughs> yeah. so much over the last two weeks. Um <laughs> Um, so that my progress on the rampage is basically that I've started doing cabling. Um, I've also done it on like the, the demonic growth that's part of the left arm. So I've started plugging that into the chassis with some of these cables. I'm going to, uh, do some cables going from that bit of the arm into the chainsaw as well at that point. Um, but for most, for the most part, I've not been paying too much attention to that because I did, I did the deep dive into Necromunda. Like I said, I was going to do it. <laughs> And I did it. I really, really did it. Um, <laughs> God, it, it felt good. I did, I did a little bit of a binge, but it was really, really nice. Um, so when my paycheck came through, I the next day went out uh, to Tactics, which is a game store in the city here, mm-hmm. uh, and which still has not one, not three, but I think about five uh, Necromunda Underhive boxes hidden away in various Ooh. bits of their store. Yeah, it's just just. Like, they're just hidden around, if you can find them. Uh, I did call ahead and check that they still had one, just in case, because the last time I'd been, I'd only spotted the one. I was like, cool, they've got just one. So I just can't tell anyone in Perth about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I mentioned, like, yeah, no, we've still got it in stock. And I went there, and I picked out the one I saw, and then I looked, and just below it were another two. And then halfway across the store, I saw another one, like, partway behind a shelf, like, tucked away, like... You guys ordered a lot of these in a few years back, I can tell. Um, <laughs> um, and they have a they have a lot of Necrombunda stuff in store there, which is really That's nice, good. actually. Because yeah. um, obviously, if you go to a Games Workshop store, they are order in only for the uh, specialist right. game stuff for yeah. the most part. Um, more surprisingly, they have almost all of the uh, the tactics cards packs in stock. Which, no, no, that's good because they're, they're yeah, like gold dust. It's for some crazy. Of them. Mm. Oh yeah, like, I, I think there's a couple they don't have, but again, I found I've kept found finding them in like little nooks and crannies and stuff. Um, <laughs> so, um, it, it's a very tightly packed sort of like a little labyrinth of a store. It, it's a mm. gold mine, honestly. If you're in Perth and you haven't been to Tactics before, go to it. It's so cool. Uh, about half the store is historical miniatures stuff, but the other half is a mix of every uh, every miniatures war game and every 
every sort of tabletop RPG or just general RPG system ever. So like there's, there's these shelves of books with RPG systems no one has ever heard of. And like oh, nice. books stacked up on there and there's all this old stuff. Uh, they've still got some dark heresy stuff sitting around. Oh, amazing. Uh, don't don't have the core rules, unfortunately, but they've got like a bunch of the expansions and the adventure systems for that and stuff lying around. It's, it's just a nice place to go and hang that, out. That, that really reminds cool. me of um, my <laughs> local, you know, indie store mm. where I am. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that, because basically the indie store where I am is actually part of a pub. Um, as in, mm, I think mm. the owner owns the pub, but then he decided to yeah. do a gaming store yeah. within the pub and it's open during the day and obviously shuts at night for mm. it to be a pub at night, you know, as, as you'd yeah, expect. Yeah. And it's a bit like that way where the, the shop part of it, where you, you know, obviously you can buy stuff and then there's mm. a playing area, um, down below. Yeah. And the, the shop bit is where like all the GW stuff is in one area, you know, you've got all the, the paint mm. stands and everything, you know, everything's all nicely yeah. laid out. And then to the side mm. of it, you've got the historical stuff, like all the bolt action <laughs> sort of stuff on one side. Mm. Lovely. You go to the other side and it's everything else. And it's like a whole oh, yeah. wall of just <laughs> like, like half the, like the lower half of the wall, I would say is like baskets mm. of stuff. So it's just crammed okay. with everything. And then the top yeah. half is, yeah. um, you know, things, you know, hooked up on, you know, on the, uh, mm. on the things there. So, it, you know, it, it's literally, you've got, it's, <laughs> he's just literally thrown it all together. It's, it's messy, yeah. but not, I'm not necessarily in a bad way, but it's just where no. you've just got to literally delve, you know, put, pull things apart. Mm. Like, right, where's that? Mm. You know, it's, you'll be there oh. going, oh, there's a board game. Oh, there's some so Yu-Gi-Oh cards. It's there's, a, the there's Gaslands, you know, it's sort of, yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's just absolute crazy, but you know, yeah. you'll hopefully find what you want. And then in the middle of those two, mm. like right between those two walls, the GW wall and the, the everything else mm. wall, then there's the specialist games in the middle. So Necromunda, Blood Bowl, yeah, you know, yeah. et cetera. And, it, and that's where, you know, he, he does stock a lot of that stuff, which is great because like mm. I said, local GW yeah. doesn't sell any of that. So no, no, uh, which is a shame because there's great stuff there, but I'll get into that in a minute. Um, so yeah, I did, I did a little bit of a spree. So I picked up the Underhive box set. Uh, I picked up the Necromunda core rules book because, mm-hmm. uh, that contains a bunch of all the scenarios and all the rules and stuff from all the gang war supplement books, which I'm not going to pick up because there's like four or five of them. These little individual, like soft cover books. There's, they're messy. They're all over the place. Um, Necromunda went through a troubled period after its initial launch, apparently, but the core rule book packages 98% of all the stuff in those up, I think. So it includes like 20 plus scenarios and all the rules and all the, the basic stuff. Um, I also picked up the House of Chains book, mm-hmm. uh, which is the House Goliath. It's, it's essentially the House Goliath Codex. And whew, we have been getting, we've been getting shafted in the 40k and Age of Sigma scene, I think, because <laughs> this, I think this is the best book I've ever bought. Not not from like Games Workshop, but the best gaming book I've ever bought from really? any company ever. It is wow, incredibly like just just the feel of it. It is mm-hmm. it is heavy. It's got a beautiful. It's got one of those sort of hard soft covers, so it's got yeah, you know the the slightly spongeness to it. Um, yep. the the paper is super high quality, and this thing is filled to the brim with incredibly cool content. Um, uh, it it is. I don't even know where to start with it. Um, so the first <laughs> 60 odd pages of this, I think it's a couple hundred page book is just straight up lore about House, House Goliath. It's laid out in a timeline. It shows like 
their origins as a like the Vansar and Escher gangs came together after a, after a previous house house was destroyed. They came together and made a slave race genetically, and that was the origins of the Goliath. And eventually, the Goliath rose up and filled the spot of the house that had been destroyed before. Um, there's all kinds of crazy information there. It's super grimdark. It's super well detailed, and it's super neatly laid out overall, which is really nice. Like everything makes sense. Like this should be here, then this is here, then this is here. Um, it talks a lot about their culture, which I always go on and on about. And like Goliaths, sure they believe in being the biggest and the strongest and the best, but part of that is a belief in sort of descendancy and ancestry. And so they have like every hundred years, uh, they have something called the Feast of the Fallen. Uh, where they get together, they have a big feast, they have a big fight, and during the fight they get possessed by the spirits of their ancestors and go into rages and things like that, which is a scenario in the book. Um, and depending, essentially what happens is when, whenever someone's injured by a weapon but not taken out, um, you roll a dice depending on what kind of weapon traits the weapon had, and there's a chance that someone gets possessed by one of the ancestor spirits. And <laughs> one of them... One of them lets you become the God of Fury, which gives your melee attacks blast three inches and knock back. So when you punch <laughs> someone, you put down a blast template over them and it hits everyone under the blast template except you. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> there's some incredibly fun, like, mechanical and lore stuff in there. Um, and it, it does a lot to get the feel of them across because, like, visually, Goliaths are just, like, strong punk bodybuilders. Yep. Uh, and, the, and then you get into it, like, there's three ways to be a Goliath. You, 90% of them are vat-born. They're bred in vats. You know, they they come out of the womb fully grown. They get a spike shoved into their head and are given an entire lifetime's worth of memories and general skills, and then they're sent off to work. Uh, there's the nat-born, because a few Goliaths are able to reproduce. So sometimes they have actual children who can live to the ripe old age of 50, because the average Goliath lifespan is about 10 to 12 years. Yeah. Um, like, there's one bit, it's like, you know, this Goliath warlord goes out into the wastes around the hives and wreaks havoc on supply lines and eventually dies at the venerable age of 17. Um, and that's, oh that's, super, that's super old if you're Vatborn, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, or you can be unborn, which means you're an outsider to the house, you're not a naturally or Vatborn Goliath, but you've come to join the house. Um, and th- there's options for these in all the rules, because uh, there's the um, the gene smithing system, which depending which background your Goliaths have, they can get different benefits or drawbacks. For example, uh, Vatborn and Goliaths can take something called terminal biology, which is they're getting close to that sort of nine, ten years of age, and they're getting really worn out. Um, and all that means in game is if they take a lasting injury, like they it, if they lose an eye or a leg or an arm or whatever, there's a chance they just straight up die because they're getting too old <laughs> and stuff like that um, instead of taking a lasting injury. And those change their costs. Like a negative benefit will lower the ganger's cost. A better benefit, like giving them more toughness because their skin is really tough, uh, will increase their cost. Uh, but for the unborn Goliaths, there's really interesting things. Like you can lower their strength and toughness to be like that of a normal ganger from another house. Because they could literally be a someone who hasn't started taking all the drugs that Goliaths take to get that big and stuff like that. So, like, theoretically, I could have a Van Saar guy painted up in Goliath colors with Goliath weapons and say, yeah, no, he's unborn. He just yeah. <laughs> he just left Van Saar and came to join this house because they've got better health care because they're Goliaths. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so like I said, the first, the first like, 
40 to 60 pages of rules, and then there's like 140-ish page, uh, 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 lore, I should say, and then there's like 140-ish page of straight up rules content for you to use. And this is where the value really feels in, because it completely redoes how the gang works. Like, there's different, there's different composition systems, so like now you can take Jews and gangers and prospects to make up the, they need to be more than half your gang as opposed to your leaders and champions and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, access to different weapons, all that kind of things. Um, Goliaths now have certain people they have strong alliances with, so in the course of a campaign you can ally yourself with like a section of Necromundan politics, essentially. And if you've got a strong enough alliance, they ignore you breaking the rules sometimes. So, like, if you're in good with all the drug lords, which Goliaths are, and you say, ah, oh, we can't protect your caravan, this scenario, whatever, they'll go, okay, that's fine. And as opposed to another alliance where you've said, we can't protect your caravan, they might kick you out immediately and stuff like that. Um, there's all different kinds of brutes and hangers-on in the books, which are, like, extra little people you can hire to join your gang. Um, in particular, uh, so Goliath can get something called a sump croc as a pet, mm-hmm. which is, which is a genetically modified crocodile, but there is a special character sump croc who you can sort of bait out, essentially, which is a three-headed sump croc <laughs> called, um, <laughs> the mother of jaws or something like that. It's oh, just <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming Forge World will eventually produce a model for it, but the art for it is incredible. It's just like slithering out of this sewer pipe with these three massive heads. And it's so <laughs> cool. All this incredible stuff. Like you can petition you, cause your gang is just a lowly little criminal gang. They're not like the best that House Goliath ever has to offer. Uh, so while you're low on reputation, you can ask House Goliath for help. And the lower you are in your reputation, the more likely they are to help you. So by sending someone along or something like that. Um, but if you're really high in rep, if you're a strong gang and you ask for help, they could like fine you for being so insolent and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and it, it keeps going. There's endless stuff. There's four or five scenarios which are intended to have at least one Goliath gang, but honestly, any gang can participate in them, which is pretty cool. Nice. Um, yeah, there's also the Slave Ogren gang, which is a separate gang entirely. Um, but it's we've seen the models for that. They'll come out sometime later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, they're, they're super cool. They seem like they do one thing, which is walk into combat and kill things. And if they can't do that, they're going to lose all their games. But they're cool. They're interesting. They've got great lore as well. Um, like there, there's this house that's in downfall. Uh, and every now and again, nobles in Necrobunda get outed as being related to that house and exiled, at which point this, this hidden slave Ogren society down in the depths of Necromunda takes them in because they're all descended from the Ogrens that originally protected the people of that house. <laughs> and it's like, but it sets it up really well because early in the book, it tells you about Necromunda nobles being outed for being related for house, to house Arathus, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And they say, Early on in the book, they say, you know, these people flee down into the Underhive where a shadowy cabal takes them in or whatever. And then you get to the Slave Ogren gang bit, and it reveals that the shadowy cabal taking them in is all these Slave Ogrens still following the orders <laughs> of protect the members of this house and stuff. It's great. Um, there, there's so much flavor. There's so much lore, so much good crunchy rules in here to chew in. It, it's... I've probably read it twice over at this point. It's just a, <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> it's a it's a really good book. I just like reading it. It's got great art. It's got great writing. Um, yeah. Um, not to say codexes and battle tomes don't have awesome stuff in them, but compared mm. to this, which is in the same price range, 
you really feel you really feel the difference. Um, <laughs> and it makes me really look forward to uh, the House of Blades book coming out in a couple of months' time, probably yeah. uh, for for Escher. If that's on this same level of quality, ooh, ooh, wow, watch out! It's going to be lots of fun. <laughs> um, so I got the House of Chains book. Um, I also got the Forgeborn and Stimmers box, which is mm-hmm. the new Goliath gang box that came out with House of Chains. I got the Bases box for some extra bases. Uh, and I got the original Goliath and Escher card packs. Uh, I also picked up the Seraphon Battle Tome that day, but, you know, that's a coincidence. That's more for this. So we'll talk about that later in another section. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I got really excited and got down to work, by which I mean I've built an entire thousand credit Goliath gang plus a couple of extras. I've built an entire thousand credit Escher gang. Um, I've started painting. Um, so I've got one Goliath fully painted as my sort of test model. He's Binks. He's my forge boss, which is a champion. He's mm-hmm. really cool. I really like him. Uh, I'm so happy with how he turned out. Um, cause <laughs> I, I got him to a certain point. I put some pictures of him up and I went, and then I went, no, I can do better. And then I pushed myself. I put like an extra hour and a bit into him. And now he looks really, really good is all I can say about it. Um, I've, I've there are pictures up on our Twitter. Uh, you can you can look for me ranting and raving about Necromunda. You'll find them there. Um, but yeah, like I've I've gotten better at doing cloth, at doing skin. Uh, these guys are really good for practicing skin, it seems, because they've got all these big exposed areas of skin and muscle. Um, some face and eye stuff. I painted a tattoo on him. I painted dinged up uh, armor, so I've been doing paint scratches and things like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm super happy. Um, the overall color scheme is sort of black metal armor, so like a lead belcher base with a couple of coats of black templar over it, essentially, with the cloth being dulled down yellow. Uh, so that was a bit of a process because I used skeleton horde in the recesses first, then washed it with the and in yellow, then highlighted it with flash gits yellow, and then washed it with agrax earthshade, and that's how I got to that point. Uh, so it was a <laughs> It's a bit of a process just for the pants, but I'm really happy with how they look, so I figure it's worth it. Um, but then there's like some red accents on the weapons and stuff, and some green accents for all the drug tubes and things like that. Um, the skin on Binks is really super pale, but um, I'm going to do a variety of skin tones across the gang, but I figured start with someone super pale for living in the underhive makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've done a lot of kit bashing and converting as part of building all these guys. So, um, you'll remember, yeah, eagle-eared listeners, that last time I talked about picking up Sergeant Harker and a Gene Sealer Cult Magus to make some Necromunda models with. So, Sergeant Harker's bolter has, heavy bolter, I should say, has been removed and put onto my Forge Tyrant, uh, who is Barrett, uh, the Tyrant in Exile. His lore is like, he got kicked out generations ago but because he's a nat born goliath he's been waiting out there for all the goliaths who knew about him to die off and then he's <laughs> come back into the city and he's going to take back over essentially uh so he's got like a hood he's found some stuff out in the ash waste so um he's got a, like a mark three shoulder pad as armor on one shoulder and he's got a big heavy bolter so i'm going to paint those up as if he's found an imperial fists like corpse somewhere out in the desert and just <laughs> looted it because um Speaking of, speaking of the Imperial Fist, uh, did you know there's an Imperial Fist Fortress Monastery at the top of one of the hives in Necromunda? Yeah, I, I, I'd yeah. heard that or read that a long time ago <laughs> somewhere. Or, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. I didn't know there were Space Marines right there. Makes sense. Apparently they recruit from the gangers a lot, again, with with Goliaths and stuff. 
Yeah. Maybe not so much because they've got shorter lifespans, but for the natural born ones, kind of makes sense to recruit from them. Um, and all the other gangs, of course, plenty of strong potentials for recruits. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. cool. So the idea, I'll, I'll paint them up with like the yellow armor and the red trim to get that red spot color on there. Say that a third company marine met an ill fate somewhere out in the, out in the waste. They never found him until <laughs> this guy stumbled along him, took his heavy bolter, took his armor. <laughs> And walked back in and said, okay, I'm back in charge now. <laughs> um, uh, I've also begun building an alternate build for him just because the heavy bolter build costs 365 credits, which when you start with a thousand credit gang for a campaign is a little expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> just a bit, yeah. He's taking up, taking up over a third of my gang on his own. He's fine. It's totally worth it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so it started with an alternate build on him who just has, like, a regular bolter and a... It's called a renderizer. It's basically a big chain axe. It's very cool. Um, so work on him. Uh, every every model's a little bit kitbashed in some way. Mostly it's me strapping extra weapons to backs and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, like, I've taken Sergeant Harker's body and turned him into a juve who's, like... He's got a big fighting knife. He's yelling, and he's he's yelling because he's just cut his hand as like some kind of blood ritual thing. Um, so he, he looks pretty cool. He'll fit in because um, he's not wearing armor. He's going to be a juve because why would I give them armor? They're not worth it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and one of my favorites is actually um, so I built up a Stimmer, which is the new Goliath champion who is absolutely massive. Like yeah, they're massive, is, aren't they? <laughs> I can't believe when you do a size comparison. God. He looms on a 40 millimeter base. He is mm. ridiculous. Like, this guy is taller than a Terminator by, like, a decent bit, I think. Mm. And he's, he looks broader and everything. He's like, imagine if a suit of Terminator armor was just all the muscle and bone of a person. <laughs> like, that's how big <laughs> these guys are. Um, and because the kit comes with dual axes, but those are really expensive and also really overkill. Um, so I've switched them out for twin spud jackers, which are sort of big wrenches, mm-hmm. uh, effectively. Um, and I'm pretty happy with that loadout. Uh, it still works really well in games, as I'll get to in a bit. Um, I've built a Forgeborn from the Forgeborn Stimmers kit as well. Um, I wanted to switch him out for a cheap weapon set. So he's got a knife and he's running forward and going for a pistol at his hip. Um, and I'm pretty happy with how that looks overall. He looks a little like he's lost his contact lens, but I reckon with the right painting, it'll be more I'm ducking while under fire while reaching for my gun and running forwards, etc. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, I've also built up a bunch of Escher. So the GC mm. Cult Magus turned into an Escher leader really, really easily. Um, all it was was an Escher head and then an Escher right hand with a power sword. And she looks incredible. She looks great. Um, everyone who's seen her seems to love her. Aaron's very happy with her. Aaron sort of helped pick out the bits to use on her. Um, I, I've built the whole Escher gang, so there's a couple of champions. So there's a champion with like a plasma pistol and a las pistol, and the other champion has a needle rifle, which I kitbashed by taking the long rifle from the Escher kit and putting the needler barrel on the end, basically, instead of the mm-hmm. las barrel. Um, and yeah, it looks pretty good. Um, and all the other Escher gangers are a little more stock, but they're so cool as it is. I don't need to convert them up too much. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, I also painted up one of them, one of them as a test model uh, for an Escher color scheme, which I'm pretty happy. I feel that one needs a little more experimentation than my Goliath one, which I look at and immediately go, "Yes, this is good." Uh, but I'm not sure exactly what it needs. So I'm going for in general pink hair, uh, purple 
uh, cloth and armor on the chest, and then blue leggings uh, with gold accents all over, black and silver weapons, and um, green green feathers is what I kind of settled on, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but again, I'm pretty happy with her. She's come out pretty well. I still need to finish her base, which might be part of why my brain is looking at her and going, eh, we'll see. <laughs> um, but I practiced doing darker skin tones on her, and I'm pretty happy with sort of like a mid, sort of a mid-dark skin tone I got. Um, mostly, what, what do I do? I mixed Pallid Witch Flesh, Dried Bark, and Gilliman Flesh to do the base color, then washed it with Gilliman Flesh, then highlighted it. And it's come out of this sort of nice smooth. I think the way the way I describe it is, it looks like someone with dark skin who has lived underground their entire life. Um, because <laughs> it, it, it's mid dark, but something about it suggests that sort of paleness. And you know, I feel it's I feel it's right for Necromunda. Um, I'll keep experimenting with other skin tones, obviously, but again, pretty happy with where I'm getting with her. Uh, I also managed to paint her eye, but it's impossible to see because it's so small. Um, you'll have to trust me on that. Anyone who's looking at any photos, I can't zoom in enough to see the eye and get clear focus. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty happy with how she looks. Um, and even better, my dive into Necromunda came with, I've already played Necromunda twice. Um, yeah. <laughs> in the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, so there, I, as part of getting up for this, I joined a few groups on uh, Necromunda groups on Facebook, one of which was the Necromunda Perth group. Um, for local Necromunda players, there's not much activity on there, but one guy said, Hey, uh, does anyone live anywhere near me, et cetera, et cetera? I'd like to see if we can get anything going, et cetera. I'm like, sure, I'd love to try that. I haven't actually played before, et cetera, but you know, I'm getting into it next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it turns out he wasn't an axe murderer. Yay. <laughs> it all worked out. Bonus. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, <laughs> He's he's actually a very nice guy. Uh, came round to my place. He has some homemade zone mortalis tiles. So there's like bits of ply with like these. I don't even know what they are. I think they're plaster walls built up around them and stuff. Um, okay. And he brought brought a pre-made Escher gang and a pre-made Goliath gang with him. Uh, and so I took the Goliath, of course, because they're what I'll be playing mostly. Um, and yeah, uh, so we did just a couple of, we did the same, the same basic scenario twice essentially, which is you get points for taking enemies out of action, uh, and the last person standing usually wins because I'll have more points. Um, so the Goliath gang I played with was like the cover of the box Goliath gang, uh, the, for the first game, which is, you know, the leader with the hammer and the combi pistol and the guy with the big rivet gun and the guy with the big axe and stuff like that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and <laughs> we set it up in such a way so that I deployed all behind this wall on the very one edge of this tile. And the only way for me to get onto the actual board was to crawl through a duct. <laughs> so I spent, I spent the first two turns shuffling my Goliath through the duct because it takes your entire turn to move through the duct. And you can only move through it if you start within one inch of it. So half my gang went through on the first turn. And on the second turn, the other half of my gang got through. And then on turn three, I started doing things. <laughs> but meanwhile, like, he was in a similarly weird position with his Asher. So he, like, had half of them running one way around the entire board because the only way to get to the sort of central area was to go all the way around on the other side or to go down one side and get to a door, which was kind of hard to access with how the tiles were laid out. Um, and with some lucky rolling, uh, it turned into a complete slaughter in favor of the Goliaths. Uh, although the leader did, uh, 
The leader did ping a champion by shooting through a duct with a bolt gun and hitting him three times. Um, <laughs> he just he exploded, of course, because bolt guns are really, really scary in Necromunda, which mm, is they are. One, of the ni- one of the nice things about the system is, unlike 40k, where things have to scale up so far, there's like a... I mean, you can get las cannons and auto cannons and stuff in Necromunda, but it's very rare. That's like late stage campaign stuff. So, like, a bolt gun is terrifying, <laughs> Because it's a damage two weapon with some AP and rapid fire, and like if that thing hits you more than once, your guy's probably dead. Um, <laughs> Afraid yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Afraid so. Um, so that went pretty well for me. Uh, then we did this a similar scenario, but with a different board setup essentially. But this time I used my thousand credit Goliath gang that I had built, uh, and again that sort of turned into a bit of a beatdown. Um, the stimmer. I was very glad I only gave him the paired spudjackers because he charged. It turns out when he charges, he gets eight attacks. Um, <laughs> and each, each of these attacks only does one damage, but most people only have one wound. And so he clubbed an Escher uh, chem thrower person to death immediately. Um, <laughs> it's like just ran in, club, bang, 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 bang. You know, like five of them go through. So you roll five injury dice mm-hmm. um, and, and any out of actions kill them. And so just destroyed her and then was immediately shot with an overpowered plasma pistol and disintegrated, which was hilarious. Um, <laughs> like he did that and then a champion just peeked around the corner and went, let's just turn this up to max. Bang. <laughs> stimmer, stimmer bits everywhere. It was hilarious. Um, the leader with the heavy bolter did okay. Um, he got, he got pinned a bit, uh, but he eventually managed to just hose down one Escher champion and then the guy played click, so he was out of ammo, so he was down to just a stub gun. But at that point, I basically swept the board, more or less. Um, the highlight of that game was, because because that one essentially had one long corridor uh, that was about three feet long in the middle that we were all sort of fighting in behind cover on various bits. Um, so he tried to make a long shot with his leader's bolt gun and sort of aimed right down the center, tried to shoot a champion in the head, uh, missed, and I went, isn't there a rule called stray shots? Uh, and there is a rule called stray shots, which is if you miss a shot, anyone within one inch of the projectile's trajectory might get hit. So instead of shooting my champion, he shot his own champion in the back of the head and killed her. <laughs> um, <laughs> with This is just like aiming down with a bolt gun. The shot just goes off by like an inch, hits the champion in the back of the head, they fall down, and then it wasn't even instant kill. They, they like, bled out a turn later. Um, but, you know, like, the juve next to them saw that happen and freaked out and started running back down the hallway away from the Goliaths because we've somehow managed to shoot them in the head from behind. Um, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. It was it was great. And that, that's that's what I really like the idea of about Necromunda is stuff like that, like, the, those emergent storytelling stuff that can kind of happen with all the crazy depth and wackiness that it has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, it's so good. The models are fun to put together. They're really, really nice. Um, they are, I'll put this caveat here, they are advanced modelers models. Yes, definitely. These were yeah. bu- these were built with the knowledge that this was a game for people who are experienced with putting models together. They have the smallest part I've ever seen on a model, which is... Um, <laughs> There, there is a Goliath head where they have like a cigar in their mouth. The cigar is a separate piece. Oh, it is wow. a separate piece about, <laughs> I'm going to say it's about two thirds of a millimeter long and, you know, half a millimeter wide. And it's, 
it's almost invisible on the sprue. You say, oh, that says part 43 is there, but I don't see anything. And then you look, and there's this little <laughs> nub attached to the sprue injection point. You're like, what? Um, really? <laughs> needless, needless to say, I used it. Um, so I've got a ganger who's chomping down on a cigar as of he's blasting away yep. with a stub cannon. Um, but yeah, no, these, these are fiddly guys. Uh, everyone's heads are also in two pieces, which I actually really like because it gives a lot of variety. So there's the face slots onto the hair and neck for both, um, Escher and Goliath. So like you can, you can mix things up a lot. There's a few combos that won't work with each other, but overall, these kits have a degree of customizability variability. Like you can't repose the arms super well, but all of the arms fit on all of the bodies for the most part. And all the faces hit, fit on all the necks for the most part, so you can really, really mix it up with uh, who's got what style and mm. what weapons and stuff. And um, they go they go together really, really well as well. There's barely any gaps on them. Uh, and in general, Moldline's pretty good. Mm. Nothing but good things to say about the Necromunda models and books, it seems. They're really cool. Um, there are a lot of rules. It's very rules intense. If, you, if you're pl- thinking about getting the Necromunda and... You think 40k is too difficult a system to keep track of? Just be careful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying don't yeah. do it. I'm not saying don't do it. But you know, take your time and remember, you're there to have fun. If you forget a rule in the heat of the moment, that's okay. Like, mm, for example, I forgot. I forgot my champion had unstoppable, which lets you regenerate wounds and flesh wounds. So he spent the whole game at like toughness two when he could have been toughness four and everything like that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of intricate moving parts, but I would say it's cool, it's worth it. Even And like if you're playing it just as a skirmish thing instead of a campaign, all the intricacy isn't as difficult. Um, and for all its intricacy, a lot of that is sort of outside the game. Like, the actual games went by really fast. They were less than an hour each, and I was learning as I went, and he was teaching as he played as well. So, like, once you know what you're doing, this game can go by really fast. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially when, you know, half your gang can get shot by your own gang if you're in enclosed spaces. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel I feel if we do some sector mechanics games, that might even out because close quarters really favors Goliaths who want to be at short range shooting or in yeah. combat. And those tight fire lanes make stray shots a thing a lot, whereas sector mechanicus is the more open terrain one instead of all in tunnels. So that might work better. Um, but yeah, no, it. It's a fun game. It's a cool game. It's it's really really good. Um, so what else have I been up to? Um, <laughs> I have been I've been reading the Black Library Celebration anthology. Uh, cool. There's some really great stuff in there. Um, I've read the Garden of Mortal Delights now. And hey, I agree with you. It's a fantastic short story. I think there's yes. a lot to work from in there. It's mm-hmm. super super cool. Yeah, it, it's so cool. I love it. Um, uh, there's a bunch of other great stories in there as well. There's, um, I think it's called Dead Drop. It's a Necromunda story about an Orlock gang who inter- interfere and grab another gang's Dead Drop and all that kind of stuff. And it's cool. It's a look into the House Orlock stuff, um, who sort of, they sort of come off as the most generic gang when you look at them model-wise. Mm. So it's nice to see a little, like, they, they look kind of like just dudes, but they've really got that sort of biker gang family and brotherhood mentality oh, going on, good. which is yeah. cool. And they, they are, like, the people's people. Like, mm-hmm. they mm. are... The, the the common man can easily become an Orlock. You know, if you work your way up from factory life, if you're violent enough, you might get initiated. And then you're one of the people who helps protect the community in general. And so they're, like, 
not quite the good guys because they're still gangers running around selling drugs and running rackets and all these kind of things. But they're they're the gooder guys. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> in Necromunda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was pretty cool. Uh, I bought some more paint because I'm going to need more paint if I'm not leaving my house a lot. Then I actually get down to painting a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and that was that was actually really weird because I did that just uh, yesterday morning. I went into my games workshop up in Joondalup to grab some paint, and uh, they've they've stopped all the um, painting and gaming and building in store. And to facilitate that, they've removed everything off the tables. So I walked in, and there's just these two long, blank, black tables, and I went, oh, this feels wrong. Because <laughs> these are normally like, covered in those like realm of battle boards and mm. terrain, and there's usually people. It was a Saturday morning, the morning you could pre-order Prophecy of the Wolf, two of the most anticipated returning characters in 40k, and I was the only person in store. <laughs> <laughs> It was weird. That is bizarre. <laughs> I, I don't like it. it's bizarre. So I'm doing my bit. I'm buying paint, and I bought the white dwarf for this month as well uh, cool. to help support the store through this time yeah. of crisis. Um, yeah. Um, I had a had a leaf through white dwarf. Looks pretty cool for this month. Uh, there's it's a big issue. There's a lot of stuff in it. Um, yeah. I need to order it in actually because. I can't mm. leave the house to go you and get it. You can't go and get it, yeah. <laughs> so I need to, usually I can go to my local supermarket to get it, but mm. I'm thinking, oh, mm. crap, I need to get it before it, <laughs> before it moves on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's been nice. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've done anything else off the top of my head, but my memory is frail and fragile, so who knows. Um, but, yeah, essentially, I've done a lot. It's mostly yeah. been Necromunda. It's uh, it's been it's been a great couple of weeks hobby wise. I've been having a lot of fun, uh, and I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna see if I get all these guys painted up now that you know school holidays are coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not gonna go outside during those, obviously. So yeah. <laughs> nothing else to do really. <laughs> <laughs> cool, nice. You've been a busy boy, and you have yeah. been, I don't know, neck deep in the underhive. I would say. Yeah, yeah, I would, I'd say I'm, there's Necromunda up to about here, and I'm sort of gesturing to the sort of nose-mouth level. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's real good. Cool. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Right, okay. Well, I will, just looking at the time, I'm going to speed through mm. um, what Sorry. I've been up to. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, no problem. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. You, you, a lot of passion coming through, but um, uh, yeah. I'll quickly okay, do... Okay, let's get going. <laughs> right, ready go uh no, i'll um i'll quickly do the hobby tip of the episode i think i think from memory Ooh, the yeah. way this comes from drew and on our discord and he said uh if you're getting really annoyed with a paint job walk away for a bit it'll look better when you've had some time looking at other stuff uh in brackets mm-hmm. any mistakes won't look anywhere near as obvious as you thought yeah that's a very yeah. good point actually and i've done that even with building stuff you know when you're like oh mm. I, like you know, I've buggered that up or, you know, something's not gone yeah. the way where you want it to. Yeah, actually, because yeah. I, I do that, I sort of dwell on it. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know how I'm going to save this or it's not how, I, you know, it's not gone the way I wanted it to. Yeah, just walk away for a while and, and sort of even sleep on it sometimes. And then often it's actually not as bad as you think when you return to it the next day. And I think, and this sounds really bad, but I, that what I sometimes do mm. is I will, because I, I, I want, my, you know everything to look as good as i i can do within my limits which isn't particularly that great but compared to some people mm. but sometimes when people do stuff i sort of make i wonder if like people make mistakes you know when you see something amazing you're thinking 
and then you yeah. sometimes spot a mistake you're like oh they are human uh, you know, <laughs> i yeah. feel a bit better yeah. about myself <laughs> that you know they've missed that mold line or you know whatever and it's uh, i know that's a bit of a negative way to look at things but you know sometimes <laughs> it's actually i think we we all do it to ourselves sometimes where we we put too much pressure and expectation on ourselves mm. when it comes to our models and you know sometimes that's not what you need to do really so um but no that's a that is a very very good tip um right okay what have i been doing um i if you've been knee deep or neck deep <laughs> in the underhive i've been neck deep in the jungle dealing with yes. dinosaurs um yeah. <laughs> right um well before I do that, I did I did start painting my Blight Kings, um, mm. which I've sort of parked now because obviously the the plan was to get them ready for Warhammer World next month. Obviously, mm. that's been cancelled now because <laughs> of yeah. world events. Yeah. So I've parked them. I did I've started to paint them in yeah, Sotek green, so it's like a nice teal colour. Mm. Which um, and then I'm going to do them with a sort of greyish type skin. So I will go back to yeah. those, but now I don't have that as a target. I'm jumping onto my dinosaurs. So mm. I. I bought the Skink Start collecting box uh, in addition to the the normal old Seraphon one that I got recently as yeah. well. So I ha- and also I did buy a box of separate Saurus Warriors that I managed to get with a cheeky Ooh. bid on eBay. So I've now got uh, oh right, let's reel it off now. So I've got thirty Skinks, or well, actually thirty six technically if you include the the extras. Um, so yeah. I've, bu- I've built th- well. I've built 30 of them body-wise, so <laughs> that's what I've been doing most of this week, because um, even though they're single-piece models, obviously, because they're older, they come with a lot of clean-up needed, you know, a lot of mould lines, etc. So, uh, so yeah, I've done 30 of those. I just need to arm them now, give them literally give them arms, uh, and then I'll have 30 skinks ready. Uh, I'll have 30 uh, Saurus Warriors as well. I've built, almost built mm-hmm. the first 10, um they require a lot of cleanup <laughs> but i'm getting yeah. there again getting there with them as well um and obviously because of the start collecting box i'll have uh, a carnosaur a basilodon some uh you know pterodon riders uh skink star priest which i will start building this week um and mm. obviously everything else and the knights as well that come with it so yeah i think it's about 11 1200 points worth of stuff there already which is quite cool so uh yeah just gonna just you know while we're in lockdown i'm just gonna keep literally Mm. chipping away at him um yeah one really cool future project project that i've got lined up uh for anyone that's seen on discord and twitter i bought a dinosaur now the plan for this is uh, (laughs) something i spotted on reddit so on reddit Mm. on i think it's the aos one and the seraphon subreddit someone had bought a you know plastic toy dinosaur that you would get in a toy shop you know mm. that obviously you give to a kid uh, and yeah. uh they basically turned it into a dread saurian and mm. it looked really really good and like yeah. size wise it's you know i even looked at the dimensions of this compared to mm. the dimensions of the dread saurian they're not far off each other um yeah. and obviously you know if you get the right base then you know, it's the same thing. Obviously, the problem is with the Dreadsaurian, as cool as it is, it's about £160. It's a lot of money. And yeah, this was yeah. £9. <laughs> vastly different. And I mm. have... That has arrived. I have also ordered the correct base for it, which is 280 times 210 millimeter, Big but big boy base. Yeah, um, big base. Big base. Uh, from, I think it's Dark Fantastic Mills. Um, mm. you, you may have heard of them before, some people. 
people. So they yeah. do that, you know, as a base. Ironically, that was more expensive than the dinosaur. That was ten pounds <laughs> um, <laughs> or eleven pounds. So so for, about 20, so for about twenty pounds, <laughs> I've got a Dreadsaurian from a base and a model perspective. So my yeah. plan is yeah. to you know Dreadsaurian up. So I need to add sort of some spines to him, some Aztec type. You know, gubbins on him as well. Uh, I've seen Green Stuff World do some some Aztec mm. stuff as well. So I'm going to scour yeah. eBay as well. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. because of the size, I could get some Aztec type jewelry. You know, some cheap jewelry yeah. uh, yeah, and you know, stick it on and you know do something with it. Add a few chains, etc. So don't know. I'm just going to just mm. play with that one really, and it's you know a cheap little fun project that will hopefully end up with a dread soaring at the end of it. So mm. um, something to do. Cool. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing regarding uh, the Seraphon. Obviously, I've read the Battle Tome because we'll be talking about it very soon. Mm-hmm. And I also talking to Necromunda. I have also bought a gang <laughs> as well because you're yeah. having fun. Uh, me and my mate Martin have been prior to me going into working from home <laughs> lockdown. Uh, we've been talking yeah. about Necromunda, and it's something we'd like to do when mm-hmm. the world is safe again and we can go out and play. Yes. Um, I'm I bought house corridor now the reason i bought house corridor is that two of my favorite gangs when i used to play the original necromunda as a kid was the spiras which who don't exist yet you know we'll see we'll see they're the they're the the cool kids mm. that come down into the hive yeah. with their uh yeah. like m- you know mech suit type things um mm. and <laughs> the other the other uh gang i used to like playing was redemptionists um mm. who were obviously a bit above house house cold or obviously uh, you know yeah. were there but the redemptionists were the even more you know uh erratic mm. uh, uh boys that and girls that uh, were part of the underhive and obviously they are connected because obviously the house corridor is part of the house of redemption and um, mm. or and the cult so i thought well that's the nearest i can get to it at this moment unless they <laughs> it's, it's, you know you know particularly do um yeah. redemptionists at a later time which you know you can never rule out so yeah i'm oh, yeah. i've bought a, a box of house corridor and again it'll be a cool little project i'm going to do over the next couple of months um just to mm. vary up with doing my seraphon and again the ultimate aim is that when you know again when we can go into the world you know it'll be something to play with really so yeah. um yeah. i've unfortunately i wanted to get some uh, some different heads for some of them i've seen some very mm. cool very cool cultist type heads unfortunately yeah they come from a place or from a, a um, you know third party that uh, is in literal postal lockdown at the moment so, yeah. you <laughs> so <laughs> i may have to i don't know i either i may follow find alternatives or wait i don't know yet it depends obviously the way mm. that goes but you know there's no yeah. rush really yeah. so uh, right. yeah uh, you you guys are having too much fun with necromunda well, there's a local club <laughs> near us that plays necromunda uh, so mm. yeah, we'll we'll that's you know that's good. that's a you know a name to do. Uh, right, what else? I have reading wise. I finished the first wall, which is the third mm-hmm. Siege of Terror novel. Uh, very good. This one by Gav oh, Thorpe. Good. good. Um, yeah. They've been to me. They've been getting better. I'd say um, the first mm. one was you know s- scene setting as you'd imagine, um, yeah. and the last two particularly have been have been really good. Um, I I won't say any more because obviously it's still quite new. Uh, but you know if you're following it, you'll enjoy it. You know, so um, yeah, mm. particularly very good on that one. Uh, it's based around as you'd imagine. It's based around basically the Imperial Fist and the Iron Warriors. Uh, so yeah. Dawn versus Perturabo type thing plus. 
obviously other things going on as well. Um, I'm yeah. halfway through The Regent's Shadow, which is the one that came out also around the same time, which is the second Watchers of the Throne novel. Uh, first one being very good, that one, the one that was set um, all based on three different characters and their alternating chapters, talking a first-person mm. perspective. Uh, this one's great uh, so far. I'm really... In, uh, it's one of those... Uh, oh no, they didn't type novels, you know, like where mm. people turn up that you, or cha- in this case, chapters that turn up that you're not expecting. You're like, you know, when you, you know, when you're reading a novel and they're describing something, you're like, yeah. wait, I, I know what that sounds like, and you get all sort of excited, you know, before you actually hear them announce who they're. Um, and mm. this is, and also a slight spoiler. Our a, a our boy is in it, Cameron, a guy who's very close to our heart on. Aww on our um on our you know particularly on our discord and uh, we may have done a competition about it recently he's in the book oh boy yeah <laughs> yes really? he is yes he's in it oh my god he's official now he's in a yeah. book and everything yeah. yeah oh my god exactly <laughs> so uh, just uh, that's, uh, just sweetens the deal um and lastly regarding uh, reading i have um, again about halfway through uh, reading mm-hmm. Ragnar Blackmane um, who's by oh, nice. ADB and uh, well it's quite apt obviously you know obviously mm. we'll be talking about Ragnar quite shortly and yeah I just you know it's a book that I've had on my shelf for a while and I thought mm. Mm, let's just read it yeah. so and again that's so far very good you know it's obviously it's, it's one of those where it shows him you know you know how his rise are, uh, amongst the ranks and obviously Mm. Uh, you know, it's a bit of time shifting and things like that. So, um, yeah, very good. I mean, it's Aaron Dempsey Bowden. So, you know, mm. he's good. So the book <laughs> is good as well. So, uh, yeah, you know, like you, I've been busy. I've been doing stuff very, yeah. you know, dino centric at the moment. I'm up to 80 plus days of doing hobby stuff, uh, for this year. Mm. The streak continues. Um, yeah, productive and hopefully <laughs> I'll be more productive you know, in these uh, negative times, there'll be some sort of positive. So, yeah. 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 Cool. Right. That's been our hobby section. We've waffled a lot. Um, and <laughs> we will have our first break now. And yeah. uh, when we return, we'll see what's been going on in the news. Back soon. Right. We're back. Back to talk about the news. Like I said, we're going to try and whip mm. through this speedily because uh, we want to leave room to talk about all those lovely dinosaurs a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> so let's crack yes. over the 40k news. Uh, we'll do the main one, which of course mm. is as of yesterday. Yesterday being the 21st of March, the Prophecy of the Wolf yeah. box set that was rumoured. Yeah. Uh, for a while ago, mm. that a lot of us were like, "Nah, they're not going to do that." Um, yeah, they did it. They did it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they've done a box <laughs> set where, obviously, the new Primaris Ragnar Blackmane and the the very new Gaskell model, uh, plus uh, a few other models as well. So we got mm. on. I think on the Marine side, you've got Infiltrators slash Incursor uh, squad because you can obviously yeah. build them. Uh, on the Orc side, you've got Makari, five knobs, three mega knobs, uh, a Grot Oiler, and an runt so yeah it's out you can pre-order it and by the time you listen to this it'll be realistically out um yeah. what's your thoughts yeah um oh, uh the box is actually reasonably good value for what's mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. however i don't think it's a box anyone wants to buy um <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately like um 
I feel I feel this is unfortunate because I feel this is actually not a bad box, mm. but it's not really what you want for Space Wolves because uh, Ragnar looks great. The incursors don't look super Space Wolfy in any way, and mm. like, and like I don't know, like um, I feel a lot of the Space Wolves flavor and a lot of the stuff. Space Wolf players like is the leg, not the legs, the old marine units, because mm-hmm. they, that's where all the, all the real juice and flavor for Space Wolves is. Yeah. Uh, and on, on the side of orcs, you probably already have a ton of knobs and mega knobs. Mm. However, I feel for orc, for orc players, it's a bit better, because I feel orc players will always go, well, I guess I'll have a few more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. A little bit of stereotyping, but like, yeah, uh, yeah, and it feels it feels weird, and it's definitely very unbalanced because on one side you've got Ragnar and ten regular Primaris Marines, basically, and on the other side you've got Gazgul, a bunch of knobs and a bunch of mega knobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely a super unbalanced box. I mean, the box is never super balanced, but no. like, it seems further disparity than is normal. Um, mm. However, from from the point from the point of Ragnar and Gazgul, because I don't think they'd actually been fully shown off. When last we recorded, um, no, I think they did no, they like the day after. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, they look good. Oh, <laughs> mm. um, there. I I was one of the people who had a little uncertainty about Gaskell's pose, uh, but the alternate pose for him is really good, mm. uh, where he's not not leaning forward and firing, where he's leaning a little more steadily back, and he's actually his footing is a lot more steady. It looks. Um, yeah, uh, they look. They both look so good. Ragnar looks great. Gaskell looks incredible. I I did have to argue with a few people on the internet that no, he's not small. Look at <laughs> no, the size. Look at him. You yeah. can see him. You can see him inside the armor. Take those cues. His leg is thicker than a Primaris Marine's torso. Mm. He's big. He's big. Okay. He's yeah. got a little head <laughs> because he's so big. Yep. <laughs> like the head, the head is the one bit of the orc that doesn't have to grow exponentially. <laughs> no, exactly. It, it will keep growing. It won't grow to ridiculous proportions because then it would just fall off. No. Probably. Um, I mean, it did get cut off, but that's different. Um, <laughs> I don't, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the an, models it's an, are great. It's just a weird box. Yeah. I, I was going to say it's an, it's an yeah. odd one. I mean, it's not the end of the world. I think that, like you said, Ragnar looks mm-hmm. amazing. He's always got a special place in my heart because he is the very first character model i ever owned yeah in games workshop yeah. when i was a kid so i've always uh i've always really liked him uh yeah infiltrators in cursor is an odd choice to go with him it's a weird one in a way intercessors would have been better if they were doing primaris um which yeah. i suppose are a yeah. bit not as you know not as interesting uh like i said to be honest i think most you know space wars players said like yeah, you know, add you know, throw him some wolf guards, give him some grey yeah. hunters, you know that even that mm. would, you know, would have been, or you know, chuck some wolf in with yeah. him, you know, it just would have oh, made yeah. it a bit more thematic. Oh it, my god, Ragnar know. with Fenrisian wolves and five wolfen would have yeah. been great. That would have been awesome. That would have yeah. that would have been so much more thematic immediately because yeah. Gaz is on a guard versus Ragnar leading a bunch of screaming animals. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I just see it. It's a probably a not the end of the world type box in the sense if you want Ragnar, because oh, yeah. you're going to want Ragnar. His rules are amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh Ten attacks God. on the charge, or being charged, <laughs> for example, he kicks yeah. ass, and he's only 120 points. But the the intercess, oh sorry, the um, infiltrators and cursors are, uh, uh, you know, you, you you probably will use them. So it's not again, it's not the end yeah. of the world, and and financially, again, it's not the end of the world because 
I was sort of talking about this online last night. It's hundred over here in the UK. It's hundred five pounds. It's about eighty ish if you get it from an indie store. So if you were splitting yeah. it, it's about forty pounds roughly. So for forty pounds, yeah. you're getting Ragnar, uh, who's you know it would be about twenty five at least new. The Incursors are mm. thirty five. You know, so you know you're, yeah. you're saving a bit. It's not and, and oh, obviously yeah. I think Gaskul will be the price of Gilliman slash Abaddon. Oh, He'll be absolutely. that thirty seven pound fifty sort of price. Yeah, and like I said. A few more knobs, a few more mega knobs, not the end of the world. So it's a bit of a lazy one, but I don't think it's terrible either, if you see what I mean. It's it's no, okay. No. It's an okay box, yeah. uh, you know, but the characters are amazing. It's fine. Yeah. Our characters are so good. Oh, Definitely. Sorry, <laughs> this two plus involved. Yep. Oh, man. I mean, like, the, the Saga of the Beast book as a whole, not to get too deep into it, but all the previews are out now. Like, yes, they Like, all the people are. on YouTube talking about it. The orc stuff looks awesome. The space walls are just kind of being brought in line with other space marines, which is cool. They'll be mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. But like, you, that, hey, you can run a full grot army with a grot subculture and True. stuff now. It's cool. <laughs> there, there's a bunch of great orc stuff in there. I don't have time to get into. But mm-hmm. we'll, keep, we'll keep going now. It's good. Sisters yep. of Battle. The yep. line is now complete. At last, all the things are out. Yeah, it's all good. They're all here. Uh, the rhinos here. The emulators here. The battle sanctum. And then a bunch of the on-foot characters, so like Dialogus, uh, Imagifier, yep. uh, all that kind of stuff. Canoness. They're all out. They're all there. Canoness, yep. which is good, because that's a, that's a cool kit. I yep. actually really like so, the So, yeah, if you yeah. if you like your sisters, you can now get their whole range now at last. So, mm. cool. Yeah. Right. Uh, cool. What's really important about 40K? Tell me. It's um, <laughs> Mr. Bill of the Fabius. Oh. Uh, all the, I should say, the fabulous uh, kind. So, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute because obviously we're going to talk about Gamma, which was the sort of yeah. the big big amount of reveals that we've had over the last couple of weeks. So they teased at yeah. the end the War of the Spider type thing that's going to mm. be going down. Uh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I love Fabius <laughs> Bile. I love oh his novels. I love him as a character. Yeah. I yeah. I am so on board oh with this. God. I really am. And- <laughs> I am so on board of this. I'm. What has pushed me further is that because, like, they've shown off hints of Fabius, and they've fully shown off one of his quote-unquote assistants, like pulling the progenoids out of a Primaris Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then someone pointed out that that guy is straight from another Mark Gibbons artwork. So, like, it the Mephiston yeah. model was straight out of Mark Gibbons. Mm-hmm. It looks like Fabius is going to be straight out of a Mark Gibbons art piece, and that art piece is incredible. If Fabius looks like that, mm. oh my god. I can't oh, wait. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Also, also um, I was going to say, sorry. quick, sorry, quick, quick yeah, prediction. Yeah. What do you think he's going to bring from like an art? Like, because obviously, even though he's he's Emperor's Children, he's not yeah, Emperor's Children yeah. anymore. What do you no, think no. he's potentially going to bring oh, with him? I would love a secret Renegades and Heretics full release with mm-hmm. him, like, leading. Uh, not necessarily traders, but just like people who aren't part of the Imperium with like the gland towns as elites and that kind of thing. But realistically, I think he'll be like, he's here as well as, you know, he's, he's working alongside the Death Guard to study plagues and they're going up against whatever is probably what it's more going to be. But like, I would love a secret full on, like Fabius is the leader of a new faction yep. thing. That would yep, be awesome. Same here. That's what I'm hoping. It's probably not going to be that, but I really hope it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, Kirioth's reaction to this, because he did, he did, when War of the Spider was first rumored, like a month and a half back, mm, he did He yeah. did a video going, oh, it's got to be Fabius Bile, he's the only spider, and everyone argued him down, he did another video going, okay, I guess I was maybe overreacting, and then this came out, and he went, 
fuck all of you. Yeah, I yeah, was right. Yeah. I was, that's it. <laughs> I predicted it. <laughs> yeah. It looks... Oh, I can't oh, wait. I God. cannot wait to see what oh, he lo- his, his proper model. And mm. I bet, I bet mm. we will see it as part of the Adepticon, re- you know, reveal well, soon. Well... The- Adepticon-ish. Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. I'm, yeah, in in quote marks because obviously that's not a thing anymore. But um, this year, yeah, so yeah. yeah, I think it'll be part of oh, the God. up the upcoming reveals over the next few weeks. Yeah, we'll... we might see him in less. We might see him in four days. Yes, I'm pretty sure recording, the first one's yeah. the twenty sixth. Yeah, uh, yeah, twenty yeah, fifth, twenty sixth. I think is yeah, yeah. Something like that. Oh my God! All right, Can't wait. let's go to AOS. Right. Uh, hey, there's more. There's more Lumineth around. Mm. Um, so we saw the Oral and Sentinels, who are the archers of the Lumineth Redwards. Right. Uh, they're cool. Everyone's making the same critiques they did with the other Lumineth, which is they look too organized and disciplined. I'm like, that's the point. Yeah. They're I perfection. That's, that's it. They're great. They're wonderful. Yeah. Um, but what's really fun is the Alarith Stone Mage, who is just an earthbender from Avatar, and I love yeah. it. It's cool. <laughs> it's a really um, funky model. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I, I might swap the head just because I'm afraid, like, in in universe in fiction, their neck would probably break wearing that sort of great ox ox horn head <laughs> yeah. helmet thing. But I actually really like the the overall theme of the model, and mm. I think I think with a more down to earth realistic painting style, that all the stuff it's on top of will look a lot better. Yeah. But I, I like I said, I love the idea, and mm. I'm sure we've got at least probably two other wizard models to be revealed. Yeah, I'd yeah, say I'm so. Feeling, so yeah. They they keep looking good. Luminet yeah, look cool. They do. They'll be out sometime. I'm guessing sort of middle of the year at this yeah, point. Yeah, I'd say so. Quote unquote. Yeah. Cool. Well, right. we'll see. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, so we'll get to the unfortunate stuff. Uh, because people's health is important, Adepticon and basically every other big GW event has been cancelled for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future. Yep. Um, hopefully they'll be back next year. But it's good to be safe about these things. You know, we should be all at home working on our hashtag isolation army, um, <laughs> <laughs> and not and not congregating as big groups of nerds. Uh, but to make up for that, you should all be watching Warhammer on Twitch because yeah. the Warhammer TV Twitch channel is now free for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which my initial reaction was, oh, that's cool. Uh, they didn't need to do that, and they went, wait, no, they did need to do that, because now all the reveals going forward are going to be on that Twitch exactly. channel, so for the subscriber yeah, only, exactly. you would be paid, we would have to pay for news, and I don't think that's quite right, no. um, so, <laughs> yeah, um, so that's really cool, I've actually gone back and watched a few things, like the House of Chains stuff mm-hmm. before it came out, and then cool. talking about all the process behind that, it was cool, it was fun, um, you know, more Chris Peach, more of the other people on there, uh, it's it's cool. There's cool stuff to watch. Um, and go to your new go to that for um the reveals that are coming up. Uh, like I said, the 26th and then the 8th of April and something like that. 26th of March, 8th of April, I think, are the first upcoming ones. Yeah, my head. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can now directly communicate with some poor Games Workshop employee because they've 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 crumbled. They've got a Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> It's happened. <laughs> I like. I didn't think it was ever going to happen. I'll be honest. No. It seems like it seems like they were doing the good idea of not allowing the community to directly comment on things they say, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is always a good idea. I think for a company in this day and age, is to maintain some level of distance. Like 
still let people, you know, send in complaints and feedback, of course, but do it through like emails mm. uh, and and not through someone commenting on your YouTube video. Because um, yeah, obviously that encourages other people as well to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. That's where they got to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, there, there's a Warhammer Twitter account. Mm. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Is it it's, at, um, Warcom? at Warcom? I believe. As in yeah. Warhammer Community, okay. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, that's cool. Mm. Um, they are they are being very interactive mm. so far, which is nice. They and they like follow us. So they they, they follow us. They yeah. instantly get our respect. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, secretly they were already following us. They just made it official. Yeah, I know. Just 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 to, just to make it look normal. Yeah, no, I get the, what they did. The that. intern got tired of typing in at Realm and Rune into the search <laughs> bar every day as they would, you know. As Games Workshop HQ went, okay, we need to check what the blokes are talking about now yeah, so yeah. we can make a reality in <laughs> one to two months' time. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. What was it? Was Alan on our Discord said something like, I was just listening back to the, fo- the episode zero and you guys mentioned plastic systems. No, I, I went, oh. <laughs> I know. You see, we've been blessed with that psychic oh, touch for, for a long yeah, time now. It was, it was foretold. We just didn't know our powers at the time. No. Um, yeah. Exactly. All right. Now, um, there's something in here I know absolutely nothing about off the top of my head. Mm. Please tell me about The Fury of Magnus. Ah, well, dear Cameron, <laughs> this is a novel, um, a novella. Oh. It's, no, it's, it's going to be the second Siege of Terror novella. Um, ah, so okay. there was a, so it the was, eight book series is now a 10 book series. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, at the moment and probably more. Cause obviously I think what they're yeah. doing is obviously, you know, putting, putting some novellas in between the main, mm. you know, eight mm. novels for the Siege of Terror. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a thing. <laughs> so, mm. uh, I mean, just, you know, uh, I guess that's good. Like that makes it from, from my perspective, it feels like the writing team is really involved and passionate about this. To the point where they don't want to cut all the storylines, but they know to make the actual main books good, they have to. So they're mm-hmm. like, but this storyline was really good, so we're just going to make a 100-page novella. Yeah. I think, like, yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I suppose it's to, it's probably to tie a few gaps up in between as well. Mm. It also mm. allows some of the authors to sort of expand. I mean, it's, it's going to be by Graham McNeil, this one. Okay. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, Dan Abnett did the first novella, mm. which is the. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, uh, oh. Um, actually, no, wait a minute. I think this is the third, actually. I get, I'm a bit, I'm getting a bit confused yeah. with this. Maybe. Because there's Sons of the Selenar. I think that's the first one. Mm. And then there's a Dan, Dan okay. Abnett one as well, which is uh, Saturine. Um, so this actually may be the third one. Oh, I'm getting a bit confused okay. with these. But. Oh, um, uh, but you know, it's, um, it's yeah, I've just I've just sent you I've just sent you a picture of it, so um, just so oh, you can get what I'm go. talking about. But that. so, but it's a it's a thing. It's going to be oh, a thing. Okay. So yeah, Magnus Magnus being angry about being betrayed. That's yeah fair. yeah. <laughs> uh, poor bastard! Yeah. Poor bastard doesn't get a break. Um, yeah yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's let's move on from novellas. That looks like a really chunky novella. That looks it does, like just it? a book, actually. Mm, I think that's just a book. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's move on to something really cool. Hey, I mentioned House of Blades earlier during mm. my hobby section. Oh my god, House of Blades stuff uh, at, at Gamma. They showed off some Necromunda stuff. They did, and they showed they showed off uh, the House of Blades book cover. Looks cool. Showed off some art from the book. Looks cool. Showed off Death Maidens, Wild Runners, and Phalanx, and oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. Um, so Death Maidens, for those who aren't aware, um, House Escher is really good with drugs, mm-hmm. effectively. And one of the things they do is 
some of the women in the house are so vital to the running of gangs that when they die, they use a combination of illegal rejuvenat technology and illegal drugs to bring them back from the dead multiple times so that they can keep contributing to the house and the gang. Uh, And so these are called death maidens. They're basically undead assassins, and it's awesome. (laughs) They look so cool. They're amazing, aren't they? They are, they are dolled up to the nines. It looks like from what they've shown off that, um, the, the death maiden bits can also just be used to build Escher champions, mm, which yeah. is cool. Like there's, there's extra options in there. Uh, there's like a face with like the veil over it and everything. Oh, oh. it's so cool. Um, just as cool, surprisingly enough, are the prospects, sort of like the Juvish equivalents, which are going to be wild runners, which is Escher running around with a bunch of, uh, low techs. Bows, bows yeah. and arrows. Yeah, and whips. They look, and whips, and uh, and animals on chains and collars. They look incredible. Again, oh my god! Um, I showed these to Erin, and she freaked out and immediately told me to buy them. So <laughs> not yet. You know, you know they're good. <laughs> Can't do it yet. In a couple of months' time, I can. Um, yeah. <laughs> and re- really, the only downside on this box, because these are all going to be in one box, mm-hmm. um, is that's right. The fe- the phalanx, which are these weird little rat lizard cat animals that the wild runners can take as war gear options, they don't look incredible. I think they look all right. I think part of it might be the paint job. I think it's the paint Making job. Them look a little goofy. Mm-hmm. I reckon with a more a more naturalistic paint job and a little less weird focus on the face, they will look a lot better. But they look a little goofy. Games think- Workshop yeah, is I'll- not always good at like the animals leaping. I think I think it, this is a common thing that you've seen with, with the Seraphon, like I've said before, where mm. they they look when because as you know as going back to it, I obviously am building them at the moment, and they're not as goofy as the the official pictures make them look. And I think okay. it's because yeah. I think it's the paint jobs. I think it's mm. when they give them pupils in their you know, okay, in the eyes. Yeah. I think it always yeah. makes. Whereas if they didn't give them pupils, they actually would look a bit better. I think it makes that's what makes mm. them look a bit goofy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah, I know, I know where you're coming from. I reckon from. that'll work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it looks like it's going to be awesome. It looks like it's going to be House of Chains, but for Escher, and yep. I want that. I want to. I want to know all the dumb nonsense Escher has gotten up to behind the scenes. I want to <laughs> know all the details. I want to see what their version of the three-headed sump croc is. <laughs> um, because because I know I know that their brute. Uh, their sort of big heavy hitter is like a genetically engineered tiger that breathes gas as a weapon and things like that called a chimerix. And I want to know if it's just going to be one of those with like 15 arms or something. I don't know. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be something crazy. Um, yeah, it's going to be cool. It's going to be so cool. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it, and it, it stays cool. Um, mm. Someone pointed. Someone pointed out almost all the gamma reveals were female models, and it mm. came like a day after International Women's Day, uh, because we kept going with uh, Warhammer Underworlds to Morgwaith's Blade Coven. Lay it on me, Matt. Well, <laughs> I must admit this is a gorgeous looking warband, and I mean we knew they were coming. Mm. We knew that obviously daughters oh, came. Yeah. We're going to get one. Um, I I love them. I love their poses. Uh, I mean I know it's mm. a bit subjective but i love the one the uh one with the whip uh what's mm. it, what they call the sister what they call the one the altar slaughter that's it sister slaughter yeah. so yeah. yeah she looks amazing a bit fragile mm. you gotta be careful with that one but, <laughs> but yeah might each, pin each of them looks amazing <laughs> they really do mm. look cool i'm and and, oh, I'm, yeah. and i'll be again i imagine that similar to like with a lot of the other ones when they go into aos they'll make good alternative mm. models you know for things you oh, know especially yeah. 
more Gwen yeah. or more Gwaith herself. So yeah, I'm She'll really looking forward queen. to, and I'm going to get it because I I feel like every oh, yeah. warband I've got has got three models in it, and I want more than three models <laughs> in, in a warband. Yeah, this one's got five. <laughs> I want the yeah, numbers. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it having more than three guys. Trust me. Yeah, um, yeah I, I also really, really, really like them. Um, honestly, the only model I'm not wild about is the Melusai, just mm. because she's kind of standard and yeah. not like super dynamic. She, she's just slithering around shooting a bow, and that's mm. cool. Don't get me wrong; she looks great, but all the others, like with especially compared to like the sister of slaughter who is vaulting over rubble mm. connected by her whip and her shield and nothing yep. else. And like all the others look incredibly cool. They do. Like, this is the, the, the metal size fine. Yeah. She's just not 10 million percent. You know, <laughs> I think also it's a good, this is a good way to get your daughters of Cain fixed without collecting daughters mm. of Cain. Cause I, I love daughters oh, of Cain, yeah. but I'm, but their horde element has always put me off. Like I don't want to buy yeah. it. 90 to 120 witch elves that just no, doesn't appeal don't do it. uh so whereas like <laughs> this it will get that little fix for you you know so yeah mm, really yeah, looking forward to them yeah. coming out which i imagine will be in the next month or so yeah should be pretty soon mm. um excellent and the the last thing shown off at gamma was adeptus titanicus mm. so this was this, this is a real specialist in box games uh reveal which i actually really liked it was cool um, and yeah, so we have the Defensive Riser is going to be another campaign book for Titanicus, I believe. Um, yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. yep new campaign book. Yep. Yep. Talking about defending the Forge world of Riser, which is cool. Uh, and with it is coming more tiny baby knights. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, going to be a kit for knight acherons and knight castigators, uh, which is really cool. So more Serastus knight options beyond the Lancer. Um, they look great. Like, Every time I see a Titanicus model, I have to spend 10 to 20 seconds making sure it's a Titanicus model. Uh, <laughs> these fall into that same category. They, I mean, I just put together a Castigator, and I still had trouble. I had to make sure that they were not full-size. <laughs> Are you sure that's a Titanicus? Yeah, okay. Like, here's the hint. It's how big the rivets are compared to the armor panels. Oh, good if point, you can yeah. See them, if you can see them. It's a Titanicus model, pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, that's the only thing. Otherwise, they are almost perfect replicas mm, of full-scale amazing. models, which is awesome. I really got to do like a, a tiny night house. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for you to break size. that duct. <laughs> <laughs> I got I'm into wait. Titanicus and made a real. I grew a real mushroom out of a baby knight <laughs> to represent my, my first chaos knight. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. it's, it's like we always say, it's amazing <laughs> how much support they're giving for these games. And, like, definitely yeah. a lot of love is going into these specialist games. Like oh, you were saying, yeah. the Necromunda earlier. I can't mm. wait to see, like, the next books, because we'll see what will be the one after that will be the Orlocks, and then it'll be Vansar. Yeah. yeah. And, and the standard's amazing. Cordor next year. Yeah. And stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, man. No, it's it's been great. It's been... it. Specialist games have been really well supported over the last mm. couple of years, but I feel like the last few months have really they've really started amping it up yeah like, they from have. like halfway through last year through to this year they're just going specialist games are where it's at but on the other hand they've also been going age of sigma and 40k yeah it's just it's part of that never-ending release cycle but like oh, no. it's good because they've spread it out across a bunch of systems <laughs> so i feel it's a little easier to keep track of 
It is. Then if it was just all 40k. I was going to say it is, but it also, the temptation makes it harder. Oh, because obviously, yeah. Like you said, when you're oh, like, well, yeah. I just want to stick to this. And it's like, but then something will pull you in like Necromunda has for you. Mm. And, you know, and obviously yeah. like Titanicus and, uh, you know, Aeronautica yeah. all have yeah. the appeals as well. And it's like, oh, no, I, I don't have the time or the <laughs> to, to bounce in between all these, but we do. <laughs> so mm. it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Fine. don't try and resist. So cool. Right. Okay. Well, that's been all the news. Like I said, we managed to mm. get through it in a, a decent amount of time. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> when we're going to take our uh, next little break now, a very needed one, uh, because when we get mm. back, we're going to be going to the mortal realms and talking about things on a different scale. Ba, ba, da, 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 da. Back soon. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're back. We are about to go into the jungle and explore mm. and see what's been going on with these lizard boys. So, yes, finally, <laughs> we're at last going to cover all the lore that's described in the Seraphon Battle Tome. Like I said, fresh off mm. the press. It's only been yeah. out a week or so. And, mm. yeah, it's, um, spoiler, it's good. It's very good. Some pretty good stuff in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like I said, we'll do our usual way. We'll sort of take our turns to tell you all that's written in this book. So, uh, yeah, right. So the time is on. <laughs> Let's kick it off. Right. So, who are the Seraphon? <laughs> like you, like you <laughs> don't know. Right. So, <laughs> as we know, they're an ancient race. Um, you know, mystery from the dawn of time. Uh, bringing their celestial power and savagery to the uh, the mortal realms, and and also a quick aside as well. Obviously, you'll find if you're familiar with the old Seraphon lore that you know things have been tweaked slightly. There's a little bit of retconning, mm. a little bit of you know new, you know it's a bit of combination with new stuff as well. So just remember that. Uh, so you know the stars are brighter. They bring their drums with them. That's what you can hear in the background, and you'll see it. Look up into the sky and see their celestial power as the the stars are shining brighter than normal. And mm. in a flash of light, the seraphon burst from there, roaring their war cries and charging towards their enemies uh, with their beasts, their monsters. You know that make the ground rumble. Uh, you got their skirmish and wing troops. You know picking off the enemies. Their leaders are commanding. You know their beasts. You know and uh, mages are bringing down their cosmic power. So uh, Seraphon, like the name, basically the name Seraphon is the name that's used to describe basically all the subspecies of bipedal lizard men in the mortal realms. Mm. Uh, so that's yeah. what encompasses Saurus and Skinks and, and everything like that. Uh, they're basically spawned in existence from their pools in their golden temples. Very nice, very nice indeed. Uh, we've got the Skinks. These are basically the most numerous and flexible of the uh, the lizard men. Uh, you've got the Croxagore, who are the, the slow-witted uh, ones, but, you know, can use their strength for, you know, for many days at a time if needed. Uh, you've got the Saurus, obviously, you, which is basically the well, well-known well warrior class that's uh, for the Seraphon, you know, that's literally bred for war. Uh, and then, of course, mm. at the top, you've got your Slan Star Masters. These are, you know, these have got basically unmatched magic power, you know, despite their sort of, you know, bloated amphibian looking frames that they've got so <laughs> a bit deceiving um <laughs> using their magic as basically like a, how a warrior would use a blade um 
but they're more than a wizard. Uh, they're basically the last link to the old ones, who are their creators, which we will mention throughout this uh, this section. Uh, with basically what the purpose of the slan is to do is to interpret and implement what's known as their great plan. Okay. So, yeah. uh, the Seraphon have been around for a long time in the mortal realms, uh, basically since the Age of Sigmar. They were, where at that point they were compared to being similar to the Stormcast Eternals. Obviously, in a sense, mm. both factions appear from the heavens in light. So, you know, mm. for a lot of people, they were sort of mixing them up to a degree, or at least putting yeah. them in the same, you know, same ballpark. Um, Basically, the truth is complicated, as you'd imagine. Uh, they're basically flesh and blood creatures with magic in their veins. So it's not so that's you know, remembering lore from the original Seraphon is not what it is anymore, really. So they are now fully flesh and blood creatures, but like I said, magic in their veins. Uh, so basically, the first of their kind uh, was traveling in their temple ships, which eventually then led to Azir. Uh, their spawning pools are basically infused with star magic. And in turn, the Seraphon came out, you know, to join the ships. Mm. Uh, so basically, you've got to so imagine there's Seraphon already on the ships, but then there's also these spawning pools, and they sort of just they've come together basically, uh, and mm. uh, collectively are now seen as heavenly beings. Um, you've got two different sort of main sort of sub factions. You've got the Starborn. Uh, mm. So these. These Seraphon are basically have got weapons like with Celestial uh, Fury built into, they basically burst into light when they're killed. Um, they're, so they are conjured into existence by the Slan uh, into lizard form, you know, so so that's playing into that old sort of style of lore uh, and basically use their translocation portals to pinpoint strike, you know, towards their enemies. Uh, also, due to the connection to Azir, the basically the Starborn cannot take true physical form down in the mortal realms. But some temple fleets have all, but have made their homes in the realms. So in turn, with their celestial energy mixing with the magic of the realm, that's basically allowed true physical form to happen. So again, there's a bit of a law shift there. Uh, the other main sort of sub-factional being of the Seraphon is the Coalesced. Uh, these basically are the Seraphon that have embraced the jungle over the heavens uh, and use their realm shaper engines. That's that new... Uh, train piece we saw uh ramping the growth that's nearby them so basically all the jungle around them sort of you know grows at a far quicker rate than than you'd expect uh their frosty compensates for giving up time and space so if you imagine mm-hmm. like i said the starborn are the ones that are still using the you know the heavens using their way to the, uh to uh, move around and fight these seraphon are the more feral the bit more normal ones so they've like i said they've given up yeah. the heavens but that, like I said, that's compensated with being a bit more savage with the way they yeah. fight. <laughs> uh, whichever Seraphon they are, you know, whether you're coalesced or you're starborn, your aim is to complete the great plan, and that is to destroy chaos. So, mm-hmm. uh, talking of chaos, chaos, or as they're known, the internal, the eternal enemy, is their greatest of all their foes. Uh, battles, you know, on the uh, de- depicted in their spawn sanctums, retelling the whole mm-hmm. history between the Seraphon and Chaos. Uh, it's going back, obviously, many, many years. Uh, other races mm-hmm. believe them to be quite strange um, because, compared to a lot of other races, they have no interest in territory or wealth or anything like that. They're just, like I said, very single-minded just destroy chaos <laughs> that's all they really care about particularly uh so you've got stories of these liz men coming from nowhere to wipe out whole you know whole co- cultures at, at one time you know told mm. by all people in the uh the mortal realms um but this is more of a necessity over malice in the sense that they they do this to make sure the great plan is not interrupted 
uh, and removed from the great cosmic equation. So I, if they can get in there, destroy a race or a little, you know, tribe or culture that could, you know, influence chaos or be or be influenced by chaos, I should say, um, they'll do that because that's what how they roll. Uh, so talking of the slan, slan uses their powers to predict you know issues that come up so you know you'll see where they'll use that to take down a, an orc clan or a you know a, a necromancer that you know that uprises uh, or corruption within the ranks of order uh, in a flash of light uh, basically they'll even fight each other if the star master's plans do not align because again the base of these star masters will be in control of a certain amount of seraphon and obviously sometimes they won't always see eye to eye you know that's sort of what happens uh ultimately they have their own task rather being part of sigma's pantheon so even though they are part of order they it's just more of a convenience than anything because obviously for, to them they don't really care about the bickering of you know sigma and the pantheon and everything like that it's like we're here just to kill chaos it just happens that you yeah. want to do that too so we'll team up with yeah. you it's sort of that sort of mentality mm-hmm. um the in regards to the old ones um they still remain a mystery. Uh, all that's known is they had great power, intelligence, and generally had a great, a grand plan for the whole of creation. The old ones basically came from beyond on these big, huge, lovely silver ships to give power to these creations, particularly the Slan, uh, being the, sort of the most blessed of these uh, creatures, because obviously they realised that they could do good with this power. Uh, the Slan basically built at this point their first temples, which is to harness the magical power, and then they basically transformed them into these big cigarette ships, uh, which is very cool indeed. Um, again, talking about the old ones, their plans and their names as well lost to a degree in the sense that obviously yeah. they've either been lost, they're damaged over time. Uh, skink scribes have tried to recreate, you know, the uh, the words not really got anywhere with that uh the coalesces yeah. of basically started turning the old ones into statues so you've got this sort of weird mm. sort of situation where they're building statues <laughs> of an old one that they don't know much about <laughs> so this yeah. to the point they don't yeah. even know their name they're sort of like we think this is what they would probably look like um but <laughs> that's the best they can do because they're all sort of mm. in that same situation um basically the old ones treated science and magic as one uh so they in turn sort of develop these sort of techno-sorceress relics, uh, like the Sunbolt gauntlets that you'll see, uh, or the Engine of the Gods. That's another uh, uh, sort of creation that they've done. Um, And basically, they've been, you know, in turn, these relics have been used as weapons by the Seraphon to fight chaos, because it's like, well, we've got them, and the old ones would have built them for a reason, (laughs) so let's use them to fight chaos. Um, Yeah. Uh, and arguably one of their greatest achievements is the realm gates themselves, um, as in the old ones, uh, you know, because obviously it's rumoured that they're responsible for those as well. So, you know, basically these sort of ancient texts suggest the old ones created them. Uh, the slan know how to use them um, and, mm. you know, use their magic to take advantage of this sort of network of gates. So that yeah. sort of makes sense as yeah. well. So um, that's... That's interesting because that implies the um the mortal realms existed at the same time as the rest of Warhammer Fantasy mm. because the old ones were already long gone by the time of Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah. So they would have had to Hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know mm. it's a bit of a bit of an odd one, I suppose. But then I suppose it could do. Like, you know, you yeah. could use alternate realities parallel you know shenanigans going on you know maybe they were just always out there and that's where magic actually came from yeah (laughs) yeah who knows its way to the fantasy world eventually yeah yeah (laughs) true Uh, right tell us about the warriors of the stars yes 
So pretty much every race in the Mortal Realms don't really understand how they came to be there or how they came to be at all. Uh, it's the same for the Seraphon, but they can say one thing with certainty. They came from the stars. <laughs> um, even the gods, however, don't exactly know how are the temple ships of the Seraphon made it to the Mortal Realms. The Slan might, but they don't bother talking about it. Um, basically, every civilization that encounters the Seraphon has a different belief about how they came to be and how they came to get to the Mortal Realms. Uh, this is my favorite snippet in the whole book is, of all the human cultures of the realms, few meditate upon the cosmos as deeply as the venerable moon monks of Haish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just love, I just love the idea of there being a sect called the moon monks of Haish. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. Um, they, they basically study, because there's lots of moons in the mortal realms, uh, they study lunar bodies within their own realm sphere, within Haish and beyond, uh, with this sort of obsessive, uh, urge. And their extensive contemplations, they've almost inadvertently come to possess almost all the collected knowledge on the Seraphon. Uh, but even that's not actually all that much. Uh, but there's, uh, one thing is really, really clear, which is that the Slan specifically are not native to the mortal realms. Mm. In all of creation, they are completely alone. Uh, and thus the monks suppose that the temple ships themselves must also be from outside the mortal realms. Um, the first Seraphon were, you know, the survivors of the old world. The lizard men packed up onto their ziggurats, and then the ziggurats turned out to be spaceships. Uh, and <laughs> off, and off they flew, off into the void. Um, but, you know, space travel takes a really long time, mm. and also, uh, it's really cold out there, which is not great if you're a reptile. Uh, and so essentially the slan put the majority of the saurus that made it on board into suspended animation and over the eons uh the ships slowly lost power and the slan were the only you know thinking things left on board as the ships just drifted throughout the expanse of the void um but very similar to sigma uh, they were rescued by the great Drake Dracotheon. Mm. Uh, he, he discovered these ice wreath ships floating through the great nothing and sort of breathed the light of the stars over them to awaken the ship systems once more. Uh, some of the skink scholars think that the earliest seraphon were literally created by Dracotheon's breath. Uh, while cartographers in Azir note that, um, you know, these certain anomalies early in the mortal realm's history appear to be the initial temple fleets. And they believe that Dracotheon basically filled up the batteries of the temple ships and gave them the ability to independently, permanently fly through the void, uh, as well as filling all the dormant spawning pools with, uh, magic from the realm of heavens, uh, which is where the, uh, the Seraphon of today were really born because they are the lizard men of all, but with that additional celestial magic infusing them. Um, Others think that, you know, while Tracotheon was looking at the temple ships, uh, the Slan formed a telepathic link with him and sort of basically convinced him to help them, help them by showing him what they went through at the end of the old world. And he guided them towards the, uh, the realm of the heavens. Um, the shamanistic word lords, however, there's, there's lots of other cultures that have theories about this. The word lords believe that in the uppermost reaches of Azir is the actual kingdom of the true gods. Mm. And the Seraphon fleets are just scouts from that place. It's like, 
I really like that one because that feels like a gene stealer cult law almost. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. the star gods come, they send their messengers, but it's actually the Seraphon instead of gene stealers <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and there are people who believe that the old ones, the Slans Masters, were actually in some way responsible for the creation of the mortal realms themselves. Um, nothing, nothing's beyond possibility with those guys. Uh, so. Uh, especially this is propped up by the Slan's intimate knowledge of realm gates and how to circumvent and redirect them in times of need. Uh, some skinks say that the first Seraphon were basic reptiles uplifted to make it serve a new purpose by the old ones, and it's sort of in the nature of the Slan to do the same thing, manipulate lesser life forms in the name of the Great Plan. Um, and makes sense that, you know, part of the Great Plan could be we need these big realms full of magical energy at some point. You know, he's got to be out here somewhere. Um, but we're never going to know unless the Slan reveal the truth to us, which they're not. Uh, <laughs> but some Seraphon definitely dwell within the high heavens of Azir. Uh, their star fleets have explored a lot of that sort of void around the upper levels of Azir. And uh, they've gone past where even Sigmar's explored up there. They are the last surviving relics of the world that was, and a lot of Slan Star Masters just sort of sit in contemplation in their ships in the heights of the Realm of Heaven. Uh, speaking of the ships, these aren't like them, ocean-going ships that all the other races <laughs> in the Mortal Realm have. Uh, the these are essentially floating cities uh, beneath which there are these massive star engines for propulsion and, uh, and world-morphing instruments to sort of shape the realms to their need and sort of change reality as they desire. The Slan are infinitely powerful. They just take a long time to get anything done, basically. <laughs> um, most of them are sort of parked up in the upper areas of Azir or out in the void itself. Uh, but essentially, uh, when the Seraphon appear to attack, the way they do it is they use miniaturized realm gates to teleport straight into battle. Uh, and the blinding light of that, as you said before, sort of gets people confused, and they're like, oh, they're being sent down by Sigma like a ball of light. No, no, very different. Sigma picks up Stormcast and throws them across the realms, essentially. Whereas mm. the Slan are opening a door, effectively. It's much more, much more refined, much more precise. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, these, these starships are actually sort of, you know how there's that, um, what is it, the non-Euclidean geometry idea where there's certain shapes and angles that just don't make sense to the human mm. mind. Yeah. Yeah. All these ships are made like that, but it's because they are too perfectly ordered and too like intricate in their layout for any mortal mind to possibly comprehend. But the Seraphon themselves are super rational and don't think about stuff that doesn't need to be thought about essentially. So it doesn't bother them. They've gotten used to it. Uh, and science mixes with the primitive ritualistic and the magical a lot within the uh within the starships themselves they have stellariums and orreries through which you know s mystical seers see the future with bones and rituals there's these glyph covered uh, mosaic walls that are actually hiding all these circuits running all across the ship there's sigils <laughs> of wardings into the hatcheries where they are these poor fretful skinks are just making sure every egg's at the right temperature and everything. Um, but most of the Seraphon on board live in what are called the World Chambers, which is essentially an artificial environment cube, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, basically, inside the ship is an entire jungle, and that's where most of the Seraphon live. Like, it's mountain ranges and huge jungles, this 
near infinite space, it sounds like, just sort of hidden away within the angles of the ship for the Seraphon to live <laughs> in. Um, and Skinks sort of watch the population and sort of pick out which Seraphon and Saurus in particular might sort of become great over time. Um, and of course, there are the spawning pools, which are now filled to the brim with Azirite magic, as well as just being um, generally weird DNA manipulating machines. Uh, so, through turning great wheels and pressing golden plaques in sequence, the Seraphon feed energies into these pools, bringing new generations of their kin into being. Uh, and these are heavily guarded, and most fleets choose to not land, simply to make sure that the spawning pools can't be captured, because they're valuable. That's mm-hmm. literally where all of the Seraphon come from. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, that's that. Yeah. So, uh, the Seraphon, they're masters of order. They are. Know. That's it. Let's talk about the Slan. So the Slan don't forget their mission to destroy chaos for, you know, all they've done. Because obviously, like I said, that's the overriding thing they're responsible for. You know, they may seem calm at times, you know. You know, chill, man. You know, I'm a Slan. Um, But ultimately, they have the burden of the great plan. You know, the details, unfortunately, to them are hazy. Um, it's, It's suspected that that's deliberate. You know, in the sense that mm. if they don't have all these details to hand, then enemies can't find out what their plan is. So it's a bit of a funny situation where you've mm-hmm. got a plan, but you don't have details of the plan, so the other people don't get the plan. But hey, you know, that's yeah. the way it goes. Yeah. Um, Slan will work it out. But ultimately, they agree on one thing. We must destroy chaos. So obviously, that seems like quite a tough job, you know, <laughs> quite a big undertaking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you've got to remember, this plan has been going on for many centuries at this point, whereas the ruinous powers are divided, you know, they're locked in their own great game of them of themselves you know they're mucking around trying to outdo each other so you know obviously the seraphon think uh, you know in the slam particularly believe they've still got a good chance because i we're we're meticulously planning they're they're buggering around we'll take advantage of that basically um and a key to that is the astro matrix so basically the seraphon uh who's you know, that has places high, you know, they sort of covet those places that are in high in, you know, magical mm. power, uh, or particularly where ley lines cross the etheric void, which is sort of very similar to the realm gate network. Um, these ley lines sort of show up under the, the great Azerite star, uh, sing, uh, was it single dill? Um, uh, sounds like something like Lord of the Rings, uh, using mage <laughs> site. So, you know, they cover mm. like, so these particular areas and basically the slime can use this network of power, Basically, once they once the Seraphon have claimed it and got got rid of chaos in that particular you know uh, place, mm. um, and basically by bringing these sites together, it help it they it must help them fight chaos. Unfortunately, it's actually unknown why, but they're just sort of people going well, you know, by you know yeah. getting this this network of power, you know, because obviously they're thinking well maybe by bringing order to the land that in turn removes the taint of chaos, and therefore that's fighting yeah. chaos in an indirect way. Again, a bit hazy. Uh, yeah. it's, it's very similar to the, the Wanderers, you know, the Wanderers faction. Mm. They do a similar method where they put waystones near the ley lines, um, which mm. can cause conflicts between the two factions because obviously it's a bit of a, they're trying to do their own same thing, but different thing at the same time. Uh, another idea yeah. is that maybe it's provided a backup supply of power. Uh, you know, because basically these yeah. ley lines grow with energy when the stars align. So it's basically, you know, a, 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 a source, you know, that they can tap for magic. Um, 
Not that magic. Not Magic the Gathering. No tapping in that. Um, and uh, this behaviour has sort of basically gained them a reputation uh, for for quite over-the-top vengeance, you know, at times. Because um, mm. effectively they can tolerate, you know, the Seraphon and the Slan. They can basically tolerate some gold being taken by a treasure hunter. But, you know, they go, like, okay, mm. it's fine. It's a little bit of gold. We can, we can live with that. <laughs> but you interrupt the plan. Or, inter- or interfere with a magic location. Oh boy, mm. watch <laughs> out! <laughs> you know, bad times are coming. Uh, so basically, this network uh, isn't like I said is known as many things, particularly the Astro Matrix Arcane, uh, the Realm Weave, the Great Web, mm. uh, the Internet, um, and, uh, <laughs> and other such. Yeah, <laughs> other such names. Um, basically, the Skink Priesthood believes it's homage to an older construct from their long lost home of the Seraphon. Potentially, again, that's mm. just a, a suspicion. Uh, some believe it's mimicking the circuitry of the uh, temple vessel walls. Uh, but guess what? Mm. It's both. Because <laughs> uh, basically, the Slan are replicating the old ones. They're just they're obviously there. They're replicating them now in the mortal realm. So everything's done mm. for a reason. Um, so let's talk about the time of the slain starlight. So the slain are powerful. We know that knowledgeable. We know yep. that. But on occasion, they can be caught out as well. They're not, you know, they're not uh, flawless. So let's get Nagash involved. So Nagash's uh, necroquake, as we know, caused a massive amount of trouble for the. Uh, mortal realms but particularly for the seraphon and the slan because um as it happened you know it caused stars to die as basically the shock wave hit azir because obviously even azir was uh vulnerable to it as well so nagash's long yeah. game had basically caught them off guard because obviously you know nagash <laughs> likes dwelling on things for a long time and obviously the necroquake yeah. was the uh, result of that because obviously effectively they've been so focused on chaos that they forget that other things are going on basically yeah um yeah. you know which like, you can sort of see why that happens and you know that basically caused temple vessels to die out slan themselves were killed as part of this spawning pools became defunct you know it had a real massive effect on the seraphon uh the magic mm. or oh, sorry the magical polarity shift in shyish nadir because obviously if you remember it went from the edge of all the magic, which is obviously usually strongest at the edges of a realm, it obviously got brought to the centre. Uh, it basically caused even more problems. Uh, the ley lines that I was talking about a minute ago of the Astro Matrix started shredding, and, and then it caused a backlash yeah. that basically could have destroyed the realm itself. But luckily, the Slan used their, you know, the depths of their magic to prevent that. Um, the Arcanum Optima. Now that's basically the post Necroquake magic that was unleashed in the realms and, yeah you know, hence why we get ender spells basically yeah, yeah. um uh, this disrupted the seraphon wellsprings of magic uh made it and it was made even worse because obviously other races tried getting it getting in on the wild magic because but you know effectively <laughs> the seraphon were losing control of their you know their plan at this point uh the gloom spike gets disrupted the great plan even further even though it's suspected that wasn't by choice it was just the way it went uh basically the bad moon obviously which is their sort of uh, you know their deity of sorts um went on an erratic course it knocked out various celestial alignments uh obviously all the chaos gods are laughing at this because of all the <laughs> chaos um the resolve of the <laughs> the resolve of the seraphon uh was you know but showed its true resolve uh, you know it's uh great once more uh the slan having it basically had a telepathic meeting they sort of did a telepathic skype call um to decide what to do now obviously they realized that they must they realize they must concentrate on other things and not just chaos obviously chaos is still their main task but mm. they 
they can't fight chaos if they're not fighting the other problems as well. It sort of goes hand in hand, basically. So they basically went about taking back the Astro Matrix by fighting in every single realm, especially Shaiish, because the ley ley lines of power had been rewritten uh, with the Seraphon control in the wild magic that other races wouldn't would never able to do help bring it back in balance hence why they've you know in the rules now they've got amazing control over endless spells um you got they as part of this they they took they went to all the different moon clan lurk clairs and spider fang nests they took them out because obviously in turn that weakened the bad moon who was causing problems for them um yeah. and then it's then also there's this nice little bit where astromancer uh, Palinist the Mad uh, claimed that he that he saw the temple ships actually being landed on the moon. You know, one small step <laughs> for Slan. <laughs> um, um, just uh, <laughs> it was just rumor, supposedly. Um, but yeah, yeah. you know, in a nutshell, ultimately the Seraphon are here to fight for the Great Plan and are not going to let anyone yeah. else get in their way. Hence, why mm. they're now out in the realms fighting. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, but to fight, you've got to be pretty well established. Mm. So let's get into the temple cities, uh, specifically with the Coalesce, because obviously the Starborn live up in their fleets. Um, yeah, so essentially across the mortal realms, the temple fleets have begun to land and form permanent Seraphon settlements. And as these uh, fleets coalesce, as the Saurus and the Skinks and all the Crocs and all that of their, of their fleet, spends more time in the mortal realms on the ground, they begin to become more real and less a creature made partly of Azirite magic. Like, they begin to literally coalesce to a degree, um, so they're less magical, um, but they are, you know, set in the realms. They are there for sure, which is interesting because it's the opposite of demons, who the longer they spend in the mortal realms, the less real they become until eventually they return to the realm of chaos, essentially. Um... And to facilitate being cool, physical lizard dudes, uh, they begin to manipulate the environment around them as well. Uh, Typically, these temple cities are going to be out in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, Usually, if they can can manage it, they'll put it in the middle of chaos-controlled territory. Uh, And within them, Slan Starmasters guard the Astro Matrix and guide it and draw upon its power for their own purposes. Uh, while all around them, of course, hordes of Saurus, Skinks, and other reptilian beasts sort of live, worship, and do their day-to-day. Um, <clears throat> but part of part of the problem of landing these starships is, once they're on the ground, you only see the ziggurats. But there's so much more underneath the ziggurats, so the slant are important, because as the ship is landing, they teleport these vast chunks out of the ground into space to make room for all these secret chambers in the engines of the uh, temple ship to actually fit underground. Um, so the And, of course, all that debris then comes soaring back down into the realms in the form of meteors. So, basically, if you see a meteor shower in the mortal realms, it's likely some Seraphon have started setting up shop nearby, <laughs> uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, they literally phase all their secret vaults and spawning pools underground and boop, pop the matter just up into space out of the way. Um, and they do use the Realm Shaper engines, the brand new terrain piece that we mentioned Mm. earlier. Um, essentially, as the ship is coming down, these mini ziggurats detach from the underside and sort of fall in, land, and begin immediately just turning all the terrain into heavy, sweltering jungle and swamp, sort of filling it with vines and venomous plants and just making it suitable for the Seraphon. 
Uh, and this change in climate soon attracts a whole bunch of other reptile life. Uh, there's snakes everywhere. Um, the war beasts that Seraphon use, carnosaurs and troglodons and uh, stegodons and bastilodons and all that kind of stuff, all sort of naturally flock to that area because they are creatures from the realms as well as creatures that can be produced by the Seraphon. Uh, and the the Slan like this partly because it forms a natural barrier between the Temple City and just random people strolling up to the Temple City. Uh, <laughs> but also, uh, this sweltering heat breeds a lot of insects for the Slan to snack on, so it's like win-win. You know, they get to be left alone, and there's a steady food supply. <laughs> uh, generally speaking, these Temple Cities and Realm Shaper Androids are placed on top of uh, critical areas in the Astro Matrix, and uh, as a side effect, basically all the all the jungles formed by the Realm Shaper engines and the engines of the Starfleet, um, basically they resemble the essential qualities of home realm. So in Akshi, the temple cities are surrounded by particularly sweltering forests, while in Shaish, the forests are withered and emaciated but still filled with these choking vines and branches. Uh, we don't speak about the forests around temple cities in Gur. We, we literally, it's the best left unconsidered is all we get in this book. <laughs> they say, don't think about it. You don't want to know. Um, and it's not uncommon for temple cities created from vessels that were part of the same fleet to be located thousands of miles apart. Um, you know, uh, the biggest temple vessels can actually split themselves down into many smaller ships or even self-replicate themselves through the artifice of the old ones. They sort of unfold like the Hellraiser puzzle box and suddenly there's two of them. It's actually really interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, and if a slan's not around, for example, there might only be one slan in a in a big temple ship, and when it breaks down, uh, the smaller ships will be given to Starsia skinks, uh, who rely upon divination and inscriptions of the great plan on plaques uh, to sort of figure out what's going on. Uh, now, no two temple cities are exactly identical, but they're all carefully aligned to take advantage of the Astro Matrix. Uh, they have all these pylons and mosaics that draw upon the raw energy of the realms and the cosmos alike. Uh, and it's possible due to the special building material used by the Seraphon, which is celestite. It's also called obstinite, apparently, but it is a super hardened stone that defies explanation beyond that, essentially. It's only, the only certainty is that it's connected to Azir somehow, because even the coalesced weapons occasionally flash with heavenly magic, even though they are just you know, they're no longer magical at that point, basically. Uh, some have proposed that Celestite is basically, they've gone and broken chunks off of the edge of Azir and forged <laughs> it into weaponry and building blocks. Um, and Starseer Skinks in particular have an affinity with Celestite. Uh, they basically form their dwellings completely out of it. No other rock is allowed. Uh, at the heart of the settlement, there's a grand temple that points directly up towards the heavens. And... On, in chambers atop the highest ones, Slan sit in serene repose, uh, telemath te telepathically communicating with each other and contemplating the cosmos and the great plan. Uh, and essentially, smaller pyramids are arrayed around them, so it looks like a mountain and foothills, uh, sort of geometrically arrayed around them. Some of these are observation posts or repositories of technology, where others are just, you know, typical temples where the Seraphon worship. Like, they, they lead themselves in worship of uh, the old ones. In the most remote and primal temple cities, they also do blood sacrifices. Mm. Yay! Yay! Um, in particular, Skaven are the best sacrifice because there's an ancient enmity between the two races. Uh, and 
essentially they've sacrificed so many Skaven that it has become sort of a racial fear. Like seeing a Seraphon will set most Skaven quivering just because like it's this instinctive thing. Like, you know that this is your natural predator kind of deal. Um, these, these are vast, vast cities as well, and every single building contributes in some way to Seraphon society, if not the Great Plan in particular. Uh, there are labourer suburbs filled, uh, formed upon ranks and ranks of barrios where skinks live, uh, and the skinks here sort of lead very highly structured lives. They, uh, oversee the Croxagore, who are there stacking celestite or fixing damaged structures. Uh, the Skink work gangs also plot roads and repair fortifications. They farm food, and they also ensure that all the magical technology sort of remains in working order throughout the city. Uh, skinks apparently possess a very refined aesthetic sense and enjoy creating these towering statues of the old ones or elaborate mosaics of cosmological conjunctions and mythic cycles. Uh, the spawning pools of the skinks are left sort of near the outskirts of the city, uh, but the birthing pools and uh, living areas for Saurus are deep below the temples of the city, because essentially the skinks are disposable in terms of, like, <laughs> warfare, I guess is the idea here. Like, mm. Saurus are the ones that it's super important to keep Saurus around. Skinks, you can take them or leave them. Um, and essentially, during peacetime, the Saurus lives... A sort of primal wildlife, like they do what is necessary, they worship, they, they perform the basic tasks, but otherwise they sort of just go out into the jungle and hunt and live, live in and around out there, they do whatever they want, uh, but they instinctively follow orders, and so if there's a call to war, they really speedily form up and get to where they're going. Uh, they are helped by the fact that basically throughout every temple city, there's these bunch of what are called translocation gateways, which are miniature realm gates that transport to another area within the city. So they have little teleporter pads, uh, basically, that can bring whole Saurus cohorts into uh, battle behind besieging armies and things like that. <laughs> um, now, most of the temple cities had actually been established for several generations by the time the Soul Wars came around, and people who brave the dung, brave uh, the deep jungles manage to escape with their lives and they sort of babble about arcane treasures and reptilian beasts bedecked in gold and jewels. Uh, and every year there are expeditions down into the steaming hells in search of wealth and glory. On occasion they succeed, but normally they all die. <laughs> because they either get eaten, they die in the jungle, or they just get lost forever. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. crazy. Yeah, very much indeed. Right, okay, let's talk about how Seraphon are structured, um, particularly their armies. So Seraphon armies, obviously a combination of Saurus, Skinks, and monsters, basically. But ultimately, they're still tactical and have highly specialised you know, ways of working as per the great plan. You know, that's key to it all. Um, so basically all Seraphon are part of what's known as a constellation. So this is sort of similar to like a tribe or a civilization, basically. That's the best way to look at them. Um, and they basically fight as per their ideals or their interpretation of the plan. Hence why you get different armies fighting in different ways. Um, it also It's also a link back to Azir as well. Uh, basically, the names or markings are similar to the great zodical uh, constructs in the upper heavens, such as like the fangs of Sotek, which we'll talk about soon. Um, so it's all based on that. So many of the constellations in Azir or in the realms, you know, some are small and some are large, you know, as you would imagine. Again, like you would with tribes. So basically, you've got the senior slan star master, 
say that when you're drunk, um, <laughs> at their head <laughs> with spawning vessels and ziggurite craft flying around, you know, their grand temple ships. You know, they've got all the stuff there. Um, Slan will obviously in turn will provide command to the fleets in a formation, often mirroring a star pattern because in turn that ga- they gain more celestial power from that. Uh, for the coalesces, uh, the warriors and workers are spawned under certain heavily, heavenly portents, uh, and that's generally the most favorable, uh, hence why constellations still apply to the coalesced. So even though you associate that with the starborn, co- co- you know, constellations still are the best way to refer to the coalesced, you know, from a sort of a tribe army perspective as well. So talking of constellations, uh, they can be, you know, over multiple realms uh with obviously having multiple temple fleets and temple cities uh generally often under a single star master but obviously some of the larger constellations will have more because Mm. you know as you would imagine um but they have complete rule and basically decide on which battles that particular constellation fights um they will let source commanders take charge sometimes as well uh because effectively the uh slan you know sometimes need time to concentrate on dealing with chaos and or mm. have to take to yeah. the field themselves so they will share that responsibility with like i said with some of the source commanders um some of the seraphon mm. cohorts are known as war hosts um with where if they're made of starborn starborn they're known as a star host if they're coalesced they're known as, mm. as a temple host uh constellations contain can contain multiple of these. So, you know, I suppose look at a constellation, I suppose a bit like a chapter if we're talking space Marines or, or, you know, uh, such like, and yeah, that's sort of the, the, you know, the hosts are armies or companies within that basically. So constellations, Mm -hmm. I said, can have multiple of them. Uh, They're generally led by either a Saurus or a skink leader. uh, And again, with the slan overseeing them, which again, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the four, most common war hosts are based on around this different seraphon subspecies so you've got sun claw hosts which are based on source warriors uh, fire lance mm. hosts which are based on source knights you've got uh the shadow strike hosts which are based on skinks and then you've got the thunderquake hosts which is basically all the beasts and monsters mm. um so relating to the starborn uh these are you know based around pure creatures of order you know so they're they're eternal star hosts which as sort of their big ones, they're basically uh, lesser, and there's lesser star hosts run by Slan and their bodyguards. Yeah. So, as a subspecies, they basically gather all the heavenly power uh, to get. You know, when they or sorry, when they gather, the heavenly power starts increasing. Weapons blaze with energy. Warriors come from flashes of light. Um, as the numbers gather, connection to Azir, you know, this strengthens, and then in turn, what's really cool is it means they can reinforce easier. So they've got, hence why in the rules, they have summoning, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. Yeah. It just, yeah. It's because of that link to Azir, <laughs> because there's more of them, uh, which, mm-hmm. again, sort of makes sense. Uh, in regard to yeah. the Coalesced, uh, their constellations are generally near the particular temple city or the realm gate that connects them if they're over multiple realms. Um, obviously, like I said earlier, they're the more ferocious type of seraphon so they take the war to the enemy um and they'll obviously defend their domain you know with, sav- with primal sav- savagery if you if they need to um so they sort of particularly favor like the sunblood champions uh skink leaders will be you know setting up ambushes monsters will be you know fighting you know tearing apart with their jaws etc so they're mm-hmm. big war hosts or star hosts are, or 
sorry, Temple Host is the Eternal Temple Host. Um, and obviously with that, you've got the Slan using the Astro Matrix to basically reshape the land and, and turn it against the enemy. So, mm. yeah, that's basically yeah. how the Slan, oh, sorry, the Seraphon and the Slan <laughs> fight together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's get into some of the constellations then. I'm going to start us off with uh, Dracotheon's Tale. The Fury Vizier, Science of Starlight, Chosen of the Great Drake. Um, so, these guys are swift, unpredictable, and possessed of mighty magic. They're among the most active enemies of Chaos, and each blow they strike is targeted with the utmost precision. Uh, they descend with the force of a meteor. Although the repercussions of their deeds may not resolve themselves for centuries, Every action orchestrated by their masters delivers another blow against the eternal enemy, for they are one of the most active constellations in war. Uh, they are rare in that they possess a lot of star masters. Uh, most of their temple ships reside in the uppermost vaults of Hyazir, um, and the slan from Tracotheon's Tale are remarkably willing to lead armies in person, which is interesting. I guess because there's lots of them to spare. Um, <laughs> They they know that it's all part of the plan. If they fall, it's all right. They can be replaced. Um, they regularly summon reinforcements directly from the temple ships. Uh, and with magical knowledge deeper than even most other Seraphon, the Star Masters of Tracothian's Tale have elevated the ability to teleport warriors across the battlefield to a deadly art. Uh, they can materialize mounted hosts of Saurus where, you know, enemies stood moments before, while Ripidactyl's flocks are shunted across the sky instantaneously to divert the attention of lumbering monsters away from the Seraphon ranks. Uh, basically, people, uh, Azirite astromancers, I should say, who dedicate their lives to studying the Seraphon, have figured out that the Dracotheon's tail ships closely follow Dracotheon himself throughout the hev- heavens. Um, and those that have fought alongside them claim that the skies above their warhosts shine with countless pinpricks of starlight even during the brightest day. And if you look closely, you could see a sinuous shape sending the cosmos rippling with subtle motions. It's like Dracotheon himself watches the Seraphon that bear his name particularly <laughs> closely. Uh, god beasts don't normally involve themselves in the affairs of mortals because they are a different class of being entirely. It'd be like us rooting for, you know, a microbe. Not a man, a microbe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Dracotheon's historically proved himself to be a lot more proactive than all the other god beasts. He's a long-term ally of Sigma, but his particular attention to, to Dracotheon's tail suggests that they might serve him a lot more directly than most people would suspect. So the implication here is he's literally pointing where they should go and who they should fight and everything, which I think is really cool having the idea of a god beast being more or less directly involved with um, wars in the mortal realms. Um, and the most radical scholars propose that the Seraphon of Tracothian's tale aren't actually sentient, but are mere manifestations of Tracothian's will. Of course, the Seraphon will never tell, not because they're hostile to outsiders, but because they are entirely dismissive of them, <laughs> unless directed by their star masters. However, uh, their celestial bodies grow brighter uh, wherever Dracotheon's tail fights, the heavens glimmering in approval for every unclean life they take. They're pretty cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Right, okay, let's move on to the Fangs of Sotek, so otherwise known as the Sudden Death, the Half-Stars, the Inheritors of the Serpent. So these are known for striking with speed, using skinks to ambush and Saurus to deliver the final blow. Uh, arguably the sub-faction most align with 
order themselves. Um, so they're led by Star Master Zektoka. Uh, they're also the most active when the stars are brightest, uh, not sitting around in uh, contemplation. So uh, when the Stormcast Eternals first you know, first came to the fight in the mortal realms. The Fangs were the first to fight with them. Uh, they didn't form an alliance with them technically, um, because you know they didn't do that. They, like you said, they don't, they're a bit dismissive of other races, but they thought, <laughs> well, you know, we're fighting together. Um, but they're known for wearing their sort of trademark red markings, and and in turn, they helped the Stormcast Eternals buy time to help get their Storm Keeps, you know, set up in the mortal realms. Um, as order spread, uh, their goal shifted to basically create a united front against chaos, um, but obviously with them being in control as per the great plan. Uh, so Skinks became arguably the face of the sub-faction, so they started integrating themselves into the cities, like becoming scribes and crafters and things like that. So in a, in a way, it became a mixed sub-faction, sort of it's you yeah. know part coalesced, but with sort of hidden power as well. So... It's very, you know, it's known for being quick to react when, you know, the various cities, you know, are, are threatened. Um, not teaming up, but wiping out threats before the storm ki- Stormcast even, ha- you know, knew about it. So they sort of, because obviously, remember, they can predict things and see things coming. Um, so they use, mm. sk- you know, skink formations with javelins and blow darts to basically take out key enemies uh, with with uh, Star Master Zektoka watching and coordinated the attacks, uh, sort of basically ready in the Saurus cohorts to strike, you know, as and when is necessary. Mm. Um, but yeah. there's some unsettling rumours about them, um, you know, despite all the good work they do. From the chambers of the Heavenly of the heavenly Justice over in Hammerhall, all the way to the tap houses of Anvilgard, uh, all these rumours go around. Mm. So these rumours of sacrificial rituals to the serpent god, in quote marks, yeah. uh, but yeah. the skinks deny this, um, saying you know which ends up with the daughters of Cain being blamed for all these. Um, you know, basically when there's a, no- I love this. I'm like blaming the yeah. daughters of Cain. Yeah. So you know, so when a noble with a, with his heart cut out is found, it's like no, they did it, not us. Um, as you do. Um, so. I'm just imagining a witch elf standing there and like a little skink standing next to her. It's like, who are you going to believe? And the skink just does like the puss in boots wide yeah, like, eyes yeah, up, like, the, up at the guard it? going, <laughs> we would never do such a thing. And then the yeah, daughter yeah. of Kane is standing there with like ritual scars and bloody yeah. knives. And he's like, of course, of course they blame the daughters of Kane. <laughs> yeah, it's of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's funny because then, like it says there, that the, the daughters of Kane blame the skinks because obviously they're like looking at the flesh mm. and like there's these fanged brands around him like hang mm. on we wouldn't do that so yeah so uh, yeah, yeah that's amazing. the fangs of sotec <laughs> yeah yeah that's great <laughs> so we'll move on to some coalesced constellations uh, so this is coaddle's claw the lost the beast unleashed the primeval legion of Gur. uh we've actually heard about these guys before mm. uh, they were the seraphon featured in the malign portents short story mm. Uh, where their star master had been mortally wounded, and so the skinks ramped up Saurus production, but there was something a little wrong with them. Uh, that's come full circle. It's paid off. It took only took two years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so Coatl's Claw is an inexplicably violent sub-faction of um, the Seraphon. They have these massed Saurus legions that salivate at the thought of oncoming bloodshed. They have no serif- they have no subtlety because they've basically given up on 
working out the great plan. It was subverted centuries ago, and in their place, they have this instinct to survive at any cost. Um, they were possibly the first constellation to coalesce. Uh, during the early years of the Age of Chaos, Clans Pestilens, one of the Skaven clans, manifested a Norhull into the hull of their primary templeship, uh, seeking an ingredient for a great plague. And while they were repulsed, they crippled the ship uh, with arcane rust phages and essentially crashed it into Gur. Um, <laughs> great job, Skaven. Mess it up for everyone again. Um, basically, every community for miles around was wiped out by the impact because it's essentially a meteor uh, falling into the on, onto the mortal realm there. Um, and all the survivors were for, forced to turn to the Dark Gods just to continue surviving. Uh, for Coetel's claw, however, worse than the mash casualties was the fact that Lord Quex, their star master, had been gravely infected by the Skaven. He had the mental strength to prevent himself from succumbing any further to the infection, but and could occasionally project himself to join in battle. But he can he could essentially never leave his chambers. He was confined to his deathbed because attempting to leave would almost definitely kill him. So he's stuck in his chamber, basically. Uh, and with him incapacitated and all the skinks thrown into a frenzied panic, it was left to the few remaining sores to figure out what to do to reassert control. And the only thing they knew what to do was make more Saurus, <laughs> secure the area. Uh, and so they threw the spawning engines into overdrive, effectively, uh, producing hundreds of Saurus within days. Uh, but there was a cost for this, because they essentially accelerated it so fast that all of the Saurus were born with this uh, agony, this mental scarring from the... Uh, essentially, imagine all the growing pains you've gone through in your life, but condense it into less than a day. <laughs> uh, it's not a great time and it's really messed these Saurus up uh, and they essentially are always slavering and filled with rage uh, however the old bloods of Coatl's Claw soon had this savage host at their command and they eliminated all the tainted humans in Mekitopsar that had fallen into chaos out of necessity because the temple ship crashed upon their traditional lands <laughs> just want to point that out um and yeah, uh, they are essentially dominated by almost borderline feral Saurus. Uh, their spawning pools never go silent. The celestial energies through this constant campaign of reinforcement have combined with the innate energy of the realm of Gur to essentially supercharge their realm shaper engines. Uh, the area, Mekitopsa, is this primordial nightmare that can, the jungle itself can literally swallow armies whole. Uh, and any survivors have to contend with these blood-crazy Saurus all over the place. Uh, and the Saurus themselves don't care for self-preservation. It takes one of the old bloods to rein them in and make them actually follow any form of tactic. Uh, and they've traveled beyond Gur as well, basically destroying anything in their way while roaring the creeds of Saurian supremacy above their disemboweled adversaries. <laughs> they are absolutely mental. I love them. <laughs> Great, aren't they? <laughs> They're so good. <laughs> Right, uh, rounding them up is the Thunder Lizard. So these are known as the, the Stampede, the Keepers of the Trove, the Guardians of the Outer Wild. So basically these are, you know, in a nutshell, these are the Guardians of the Old One's treasure. They're the ones that keep it safe. So they will use any tools to deal with chaos, including using the Old One's tech, uh, and obviously will create beasts to do this in turn. So... Um, Subfaction sort of basically first settled in Shimon, uh, creating golden cities, um, like most coalesced in, you know, in this case around the linchpins of the Astro Matrix. But, um, but they have a second goal. 
storing artifacts in their temples. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's unsure why, um, perhaps to hoard them until they're most needed and as per the great plan, or maybe ziggurats can handle stabilizing the wildest arcane nodes potentially as well. Um, mm-hmm. being near the outer parts of the realm, you know, obviously treasure hunted, sorry treasure hunters are still not you know uh dissuaded by uh trying to nick stuff from them but guess what thunder lizard has an answer mm. um as we know magic is you know strongest around the edges of the realm as we said earlier which in turn gives an abundance of realm stone access so basically the priests mm. of thunder lizard have found old tech to turn these substances into something stable uh the favorite of that being uh shamanite so basically they're skink priests will transport small amounts of shamanite via you know, translocation to their incubation machines to in turn give their new monsters more power so but in turn these monsters form the spear tip of their armies bring in you know older techs such as solar weapons and engines of the gods and things like that mm. uh, with well-trained you know skink crews uh, running them uh, so obviously this is very awesome in combat, but it also makes them the best at like becoming a siege force really, because obviously in turn they may have to take back the artifacts that have been stolen uh, with the thieves hiding mm. behind the walls. Um, and also they do have a habit of clashing with the Sylvaneth, uh, cause often they'll mm. team up with enemy, you know, the enemies of order and, and nature. Uh, however, post battle, they often will disagree with the Thunder Lizard's method of celestial order over nature. So mm. like, they yeah they basically argue about how things should be run when it comes to nature <laughs> afterwards so they they will literally end up fighting straight away after killing the enemy potentially depending obviously yeah, yeah. if the situation dictates it so um mm. so yeah that's the thunder lizard all right uh well let's crack on into the eons of war this is our little timeline Thankfully, it's actually only a two-page one, so that's yeah, nice. Yeah, we'll keep it brief. Keep things easy. Yeah, so I'll cover the Age of Myth and the Age of Chaos, and you can cover the Age of Sigma. Mm. Uh, so there's actually some pretty interesting stuff in here. We'll start with the Age of Myth. Uh, after these eons of drifting through the void, uh, the Slans Temple Fleet was reawakened, and they decided it was time to recommence the Great Plan. Uh, the Temple ships took refuge in Azir, and over time, the Seraphon become these extensions of the hel- Heavenly Realm. They're filled with this magic again. Um, and Sigma begins his mission to uplift the tribes of the mortal realms into, you know, actual full civilizations. And the Seraphon actually played a hidden part in this. They chose certain tribes to be granted magical secrets or even old one technology, lending them the strength to grow into these mighty empires. And a lot of these cultures, centuries later, became prime candidates for Stormcast Eternals. Um... So even before Sigma knew what he wanted, the Slan were prepping the stage for this, uh, the Stormcast to be made, which I think is really interesting. Um, and the Slan, uh, at this point, sort of realized chaos was going to start uh, popping up again. And so uh, they moved to claim nodes of the Astro Matrix, and uh, many settlements that had been unwittingly built around them disappeared overnight, because... You know, <laughs> got to put a temple city there now. Can't be having any humans around. Um, <laughs> uh, of course, the Age of Chaos comes along. Chaos spills out into the mortal realms. Uh, this corruption reaches critical mass and demons just burst out, drowning the mortal realms in darkness. Uh, the Slan meet telepathically to refine their plans and across the realms, their constellations strike at the sites of power that Chaos wants to take, sort of disrupting foul rituals and drawing the armies of darkness to them like beacons. Uh, they do allow many mortals to reach Azir before Sigmar can save it. Uh, and, but these mortals, of course, never knew who saved them. 
Um, and now we get into what Coatl's Claw was up to during the Age of Chaos. Uh, so basically, once they took control of the area around them, uh, Coatl's Claw continued to rampage deeper and deeper into Gur, and uh, they got their chance to really vent their fury when they found a bunch of Skaven from Clarence Pestilence chasing down some Wanderers, uh, as in capital W, Wanderers, the Wood Elves of old. Um, and the Saurus fell upon the Ratman with such furious abandon that, for centuries afterwards, the site of the battle was regarded as a promised land amongst the flesh eaters of the kingdoms of Gur, which is amazing. Like, there's this place <laughs> where there's so much blood spilled that cannibals go to this place like, wow, that was some real messed up stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Wanderers were, like, you know, giving thanks to the gods and, like, turning around and saying thank you to the Seraphon. But this is Coatl's claw, and they hadn't had enough, so they immediately killed all the wanderers as well. Because, <laughs> you know, they're a bunch of blood mad sores. They can't yeah. control themselves properly. Um, yeah, uh, the Iron Jaws have also had some run ins with the Seraphon over time uh, during the Age of Chaos. Uh, essentially, Dracotheon's tail where, would uh, interfere to the point where the Iron Jaws would slaughter an opposing army and go to march forwards towards where they were pretty sure there was some Seraphon to crump. Uh, but as they turned to march, the slaughtered army they were about to march over had been transformed into a sweltering jungle. So essentially, Dracotheon's tail was just dropping Realm Shaper engines at every fight this Iron Jaws army went into, <laughs> and just completely, completely blowing them uh, away from where they were meant to be going and confusing the hell out of them. And it sort of reached this critical point where they finally broke through the jungle and found a bunch of corn demons trying to desecrate a Sylvaneth grove, and they went, oh, thank God, finally, and <laughs> killed all the demons and were all killed in return. Um, and the goal here, of course, was the Sylvaneth grove was unharmed. Hooray! There are lots of Sylvaneth ready to fight in the war against Chaos. Win, win, win! <laughs> um, and uh, this one's lots of fun. Yamath, a hag queen from the Karonvo Temple, so a daughter of Cain, heard about reptilian warriors hunting Chaos followers in Ulgu. Uh, she was enthralled by Cain's murderlust and vowed to drink their blood if she ever came across them. But the Slan can't have this, of course. This is a rogue element in their plan in Ulgu. Uh, so right after a Slaneshi seeker host is destroyed by Yamath and her various witch elves and uh, Melusai and Kinnerai and all that, uh, a whole bunch of uh, Saurus show up out of nowhere. They are, of course... Um, my brain, my brain, no work. They are from Pocktley's Bolt, which is another constellation we haven't heard about, I guess. Uh, but the Hat Queen is horrified when fighting them to discover that they don't bleed. They instead just exude burning starlight whenever they're injured. <laughs> uh, she narrowly escapes with her life and reports back to Marathi, who is incredibly interested in this. All right, that's uh, that's that. Yeah, right, and yes, yeah. get into the. Age of Sigma. See what they've been up to then. Mm. So this starts with the heavens opening. So, you know, Seraphine, Seraphon are fighting along. And then obviously the Stormcast Eternal appear in lightning, you know, starting what ends mm. up being the uh, the Realm Gate Wars. Um, at this point, you know, they fight alongside each other, as we know, but no alliance was made. But, you know, the Seraphon do respect them, you know, as they're both, both mm. you know, creatures from heaven, so to speak, uh, even to the point that they end up saluting the uh yeah. stormcast which is you know if you if you <laughs> wow. don't know seraphon that's a that's a big deal you know they don't do that to anyone 
Um, you got containing the beast. This is where basically Starmaster Zen Factica uh, helped in the mm. War of Life. Uh, War of Life is you know Sylvaneth, the Hallowed Knights, Valerial Soul Pod, and things like that. Um, from a history point of view, uh, he helps. This is really cool. He helps deal with Scarbrand and Scarbrand's armies. Basically, he uses the Starfire War constellation um, to deal with them. Uh, it's total, as you can imagine, total carnage. Uh, but unfortunately mm-hmm. for the Seraphon, it only ends up with basically this particular slan being the only one left alive. So what does he do? He uses his power to banish Scarbrand to Akshi via a gateway uh, to basically in turn to help Elariel. So basically the slan <laughs> ends up being killed by Corgus Cool's Gortide uh, when trying, because basically what he's trying to do is get the demons to fight each other um, at the what's known as the Orb Infernia's sort of floating kingdom in Akshi. So, but yeah, so it, it goes unfortunate for the Slan, but you know he does his job. Uh, you got the fleets to send. That's basically where Temple fleets uh, start landing in the realms. Uh, already, you know, using already seized um, waypoints of the uh, Astro Matrix to basically get a foothold. Where you got the Skinks of the the Fangs of Sotek uh, living in the free cities instead. Uh, mm. They obviously, like we said earlier, they mix well with society and and basically starts spying for star master zoteca <laughs> mm. uh, you've got temporal vengeance which is the um known as the time of tribulations is where the orb inferna uh, waxes high with the gortide ready to be unleashed uh basically a an alliance of warlords and mages create a cannon literally a cannon uh <laughs> using what's known as the infinity gears uh that when it's fired it brings all the banished demons by corgus cool plus all the slain seraphon back to fight again Ta-da! It reverses time. <laughs> um, you've got the murdered stars. So this is involving our favourite boy, Nagash. And Nagash is obviously annoyed by all the thefts of the souls that from it that he feels he deserves. And obviously, in turn, creates the Necroquake, uh, causing trouble for, like I said earlier, for all the celestial bodies and, f- and the fonts of arcane power that the Seraphon use, uh, causing the Night Haunt to take interest in these particular areas. And obviously, the Seraphon are like, oh, here we go. Another another war for us to fight. We've now got to fight the Night Haunt. Um, you've got the War on the Rim. So this is the Thunder Lizard constellation where they impose a hold on the most hazardous um, magical wellsprings, which are now in turn being threatened by the null myriad of the Ossiarch Bone Reapers, that's the anti-magic ones from memory, mm. um, who are taking the edge of each realm. So basically the Seraphon bring their old old ones tech, because again they're the Thunder Lizard, so, and they bring their war beasts to fight them, and then you basically have a war of heaven and death that the mortals are not even aware of. I love the imagery of that, you just got all these <laughs> Bone Reapers and, and beasts and magic fighting and mm. no one else really knows about it. <laughs> uh, and lastly you've got the portents of bloodshed, so you've got they basically slammed from different constant Constellations uh, have a telepathic meeting to start a new age of aggression. So, in the Bane Woods of uh, Penultimum, uh, an alliance formed of three constellations, uh, which is a combination of Starborn and Coalesced, basically descend mm. on the nearby undead and demons. Uh, so, Coalesced basically tie their armies up. The Starborn secure some the, the what's known as the Mystic Obelisks from the Age of Myth that is. Uh, supposedly gifted mm. to tribes by the slan at that time um they overload these obelisks with the light of azir plus the energy from the astro matrix uh, which in turn causes a unleashed power to basically wipe out all the undead and demons in like one swoop uh which obviously in turn secures many wins for the uh, the seraphon in lots of different realms 
So mm. they're back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I think now it's time to wrap up all the units. Yeah, let's jump into it. I'll start us off with Slan Star Masters. Basically, almost nothing can rival the arcane power of a Slan Star Master. They're physically frail, but they are basically some of the mightiest wizards in existence. Uh, with a slow blink, they can engulf the enemy's mystical flames. A single croaked incantation can doom cities. The gods themselves take note when a Slan takes to the battlefield because their presence heralds the folding of events of cosmological significance that can that have ramifications that can persist for centuries. Uh, they they are essentially the gestures at forehead aliens meme of the uh, Age of Sigma universe. <laughs> um, yeah, they are the undisputed masters. They are these uh, steel minds that steer the lesser races of the Seraphon towards the completion of the Great, great Plan. They are functionally immortal. None of them have ever died of old age, uh, and they perceive reality very differently because of this. Time passes very quickly, and even elves can seem short-lived and ephemeral. Uh, They have this vast intellect that's honed for cosmic contemplation and the deduction of esoteric formulae, and a slam could appear to sleep for decades or even centuries, all the while thinking away at scrying the myriad paths of the future. These qualities are all deliberate creations. In the ages past, they were the foremost servants of the Old Ones, and had their magical prowess, uh, prowess employed in grand cosmological endeavors, and they learned many arcane secrets from their masters, including Realmgate technology. They are definitely the most strident foes of chaos in all creation. Every command they utter follows a deep deliberation of what will most harm the infernal powers. But they are all individuals, and they do occasionally disagree on how to do it, uh, on how to do things. Uh, partly because none of them can perfectly remember the old ones or exactly what they wanted them to do. <laughs> um, whether it's a side effect of the great catastrophe that separated the old ones in this land, or if it's a deliberate measure they inflicted on themselves to avoid traumatic memories, uh, they instead have to rely on fragmented memories, portentous visions, and ancient plaques that have been copied and recopied countless times by eager but unskilled skink scribes. <laughs> um, and of course, every slan has a coterie of skink star seers and star priests who are responsible for the administration of Seraphon society. And essentially, because of all these skinks working hard, the star masters are free to focus upon the great work. Uh, slan whose constellations have coalesced often align themselves to sit directly above nodes of the astromatrix and from there channel the energies of the mortal realms themselves. Uh, of course, they don't look particularly well suited to battle. They are these bloated, uh, ancient mages drifting serenely into battle on top these stone palanquins. Um, but, of course, the stone palanquins are ancient artifacts of old one technology, capable of projecting blasts of lightning. Um, and, of course, the confusion of this weird, uh, seemingly helpless thing showing up quickly turns to horror as Slan call down meteors from the stars and foresee every tactical maneuver possible by their enemies uh and even you know unlock the unlock the power of the heavens to empower their own warriors um of course in the case of the starborn they're even more terrifying uh because the slan were themselves crafted with the unknowable energies of the old ones and are distinct from the heavenly realms but with their knowledge of realm gate technology they summon azir-born seraphon to the field with incredible ease uh, my favorite bit of this is their, the Slan's mindset affects the physical nature of the Seraphon they summon. <clears throat> uh, 
So, essentially, a slam <laughs> with a cold alien fury summons Seraphon, who has covered in blood and bloody colours, whereas a slan whose mind is slowly cracking under the strain of countless millennia or the malign interference of chaos uh, summons these seraphon that are hideously twisted and, like, contorted and grotesquely mutated, which is an awesome idea for an army, incidentally. Have a mad <laughs> slan just summoning these awful, terrifying, ugh, seraphon. Um... The slam themselves came into being through five generational spawnings. Uh, even the youngest generation, who are known as the fifth generation, uh, are impossibly ancient, and each spawning had its own role to play in the great plan. None of the first generation live, and less than five of the second generation are still alive. No new slam have been spawned since the disappearance of the old one. They old ones. They are a dying race, dwindling with each of their number that falls but each is determined to be present for the final defeat of Chaos before they pass into history. Um, of course, while they are practically immortal, they are not invincible. Those that do fall in battle are, if anything, treated with even more reverence by, by, reverence by the Seraphon than the living. They are collected up and returned to the temples in solemn profession, there to be bound and mummified into something called a relic priest. These relic priests radiate arcane energies, but it's not known how far they can still affect the corporeal world. Uh, but some Seraphon armies, particularly the superstitious coalesced, bear their uh, mummified slan to battle as sort of like a, I guess like a, a, a good luck charm, a totem of some kind, basically. Uh, an eerie gold, uh, an eerie light glows from the eyes of their golden funeral masks. Spells of celestial destruction emanating from their desiccated remains to annihilate the foe. So do they serve the great plan, even past the point of death, utterly implacable in their dedication against chaos. Of course, no relic priest is more powerful or mysterious than Lord Croak. Mm. Waves of heaven, waves of heavenly energy issue forth from this withered husk, and his mere presence is enough to slay the weakest of chaos followers. It's believed he's the oldest slan, perhaps one of the few who arrived from beyond the stars with the old ones at the dawn of history. Despite having sacrificed himself against the eternal enemy time and again, he always returns to continue the great war of the Seraphon. He appears at the moments of greatest need, when fate must be tipped one way or another. With but a thought, Croak can pluck a comet from the vaults of his ear and hurl it across realms, unleash blasts of lightning, or materialize hosts of warriors. With the battle won, he disappears into a, sh a shimmering aurora of starlight, only to re-emerge when fate necessitates it. Some skinks believe he's ascended to sit at the right hand of the Divine Old Ones in death, unwilling to rest until the final defeat of chaos has come to pass. Lord Croak's still kicking it. He was dead in the old world, and he's dead now. He's still cool. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Right. Okay. So let's get on to the Saurus Commanders. So let's start with the Saurus Spawn Lord. So as, as we know, Saurus become better at leadership uh, as well as combat over the years, realizing, you know, what mm -hmm. tactics are needed, you know, which is basically roaring commands uh, yeah. for, for situations, even if they can't explain it. Uh, over time, their scales harden, you know, muscles increase, scars showing their battle experience, a primal aura surrounding them, so to speak. Um, basically, in turn, making all Seraphon, including the Slan, accept their authority. So, the main ones are the Scar veterans. So you've got the, these are basically the frontline commanders that basically lead cohorts or whole armies, inspiring sort of fellow Seraphon and, and bringing out that inner primal rage. Uh, can become in turn an old blood if they 
basically if they survive long enough. Uh, Old Bloods are known really as the overlords of the military forces and trusted with you know powerful artifacts such as sun spears and gauntlets of light, etc. Uh, Saurus have a limited vocab. It's usually grunts, uh, but their commanders mm-hmm. can communicate a little bit better, but generally about war. So disagreeing mm-hmm. commanders often settle arguments with combat rather than words. You know, actions speak louder than words. That's you know, basically the way the Seraphon work. Uh, we got the Sunbloods. So Sunbloods are basically the martial champions of the Seraphon. These are strong, scarred, uh, Seraphon, and they have the light of Azir clinging to them, literally, uh, fighting until the, all their enemies are dead. So they use their Eon shield to smash through their enemies or take them out with their jaws or smash them up with their Celestite mace. Um, yeah. Old Bloods are basically left to do the strategy, but in turn, the Sunblood, Sunbloods will spot enemy weaknesses and inspire fellow Saurus with a roar, you know, to help tear the enemies apart. Uh, they're held in a lot of awe, uh, especially due to their bright shining scales. You know, even after time in the mortal realms, they're still shining brightly uh, and often used to guard spawning pools. Uh, talking of spawning, uh, it's very rare that they actually spawn in the first place. Uh, most have been fighting since the Age of Myth. That's how far back they go um, with the spawning when the portents align. But again, that's very, very rare. Uh, they're seen in different ways by different Folks, uh, skink priests believe they are the, a wellspring of energy from Azir, you know, even after taking physical form. Uh, Saurus see them as avatars of battle, uh, being fragments of a lost war deity to fight alongside them. Uh, to the coalesce in general, they're basically treated as demigods and, and provide the link to the stars that obviously they've sort of, you know, um, given up, you know, by being in the mortal realms. Uh, you've also got the astrolith bearers. So basically the astrolith is a celestite a uh, disc inscribed with glyphs uh, with a mysterious globe right in the middle. Uh, sometimes when exploring like ruins and caves, they'll find rocks with incisions that would fit the astrolith. Uh, so they place the icon in the grooves and in turn, this unlocks a great discovery. They basically channel uh, celestial energy, which can unlock hidden chambers and realm gates. Very handy. Um, nearby Seraphon can use this energy to enhance their power. Uh, the bearer, himself uh not the generally the best fighter or wouldn't generally be a general but their deed is deemed a great honor by the land to be holding such a relic uh the bearer feels so much pride that they would die a thousand times than obviously let the uh, astrolith fall um they're very common in seraphon armies but they also will speed up and or power up the process that Slan used to conjure warriors in its existence from a temple ship. So that's hence why they're very, very handy. Uh, and lastly, we've got the Eternity Wardens. Uh, basically, Star Masters have hundreds of Saurus Guard, you know, helping protect and protecting the great the great plan in general. Uh, but few, very, very few become an Eternity Warden. Uh, basically, the most important of tasks all because they're protecting the Star Master himself. Uh, being a target, you know, Saurus Commanders can concentrate on tactics rather than worrying about defending the Slan. So they're like, yep, it's right. He's got his bodyguard. We don't need to worry. Um, the Eternity Warden also controls who actually physically <coughs> sees the slan. Uh, if they can't be convinced, they'll say no, basically, and their word is final. So in battle, they are watching. You know, you know, they can be seen as being very calm, or sometimes being a frenzied defender if obviously their slan star masters being attacked. So they use a star stone mace uh, with perfect control because obviously. 
they don't want to overextend themselves and obviously in turn risk the slam themselves. Uh, and in turn, this will inspire Sauroscar to fight even harder, you know, because obviously they don't want to appear weak in front of them. Uh, Eternity Wardens will even sacrifice themselves, even if required, because obviously that's their job. Uh, Slan's Wardens can be, you know, they can be very similar over the years uh, to the point where they even got the same wounds and Skinks have basically started believing mm-hmm. that they are pure Azerite force that won't rest that's instead that. of being true <laughs> Seraphon. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah wow, that's, that's them. Crazy. Yeah. All right, uh, let's jump into the Saurus. So we'll start with Saurus Warriors. Saurus exists purely for war, for war, not law, that's us. Uh, they are utterly loyal to the slan and implacable in their mission to destroy chaos. Uh, obviously, they're not born in the conventional sense. They, When the time is right, they drag themselves fully formed from spawning pools, uh, awaiting orders. Typically, entire cohorts spawned at once, and doing so sort of forges this almost telepathic bond between them. Uh, they instinctively know what the warrior to their left and the warrior to their right are about to do, and they work together in perfect harmony. They might be bestial, but they are all soldiers of formidable focus and natural talent. They can do complex military maneuvers with a single order. Uh, every inch of them is lethal. They have dagger-like claws, and they are well muscled enough to knock foes off the off their feet with an impact with the impact of charging them. Uh, their tails snap legs, while their jaws crush skulls and rib cages. Uh, some carry celestite clubs and blades. Others carry spears, and even their shields have brutal bladed edges. Uh, their day-to-day duties vary, but they almost all relate to warfare. On the Temple Fleets, they're often permitted to roam the World Chambers, but are otherwise kept in suspended animation until they have to go to battle. Uh, in Flash's Vast Right Energy, they teleport onto the battlefield, and they sort of lope together in perfect synchronicity towards their ill-fated targets. Coalescorus, however, uh, sort of form the outer defenses of a Temple City when not in active combat. They are often found stationed motionless on top of the walls of Seraphon settlements, or tirelessly patrolling the depths of the choking jungle. Their tough scales and natural determination make them difficult to lay low through ambush. If even a single source survives the initial strike, they'll fight on without pause, buying time for reinforcements. Uh, the Coalescorus are, of course, particularly savage examples of their kind. Uh, the image of the cold yet feral Saurus warrior has entered the legends and mythologies of cultures across the mortal realms. Uh, when Stormcasts of the Knights Excelsior uh, chamber fought to purge uh, an Aryan Gur, they discovered centuries-old cave paintings depicting reptilian warriors descending from the stars to strike down sorcerer cabals. Since time immemorial, the ghouls of the Heartgash Grand Court have clad themselves in scaled hides of reptilians and wielded crude clubs and spears, believing that they are the primeval figures they recall in flashes of demented memory. Another great army idea. <laughs> Seraphon. I love it. Um, however, out of all the races, they found their most kindred spirit, much to their distaste, among Oryks. Whether brutal iron jaw or matic bone splitters, the greenskin hordes find the Saurus to be humorless, but magnificently committed and straightforward opponents. Some particularly cunning Oryk bosses have even taken to erecting defaced totems in parodies of the monoliths of the Chaos Gods, through these hoping to attract the wrathful attention of the Seraphon because they know Saurus <laughs> give the best fights. I uh, just the idea of these orcs pretending to worship Corn or Nurgle just to make sure some Seraphon show up is great. Um Yeah. Uh past the warriors we have the Saurus Guard, who are the most elite warriors uh who attempt basically they guard Slan Star Masters. They are this remorseless wall of scales and jaws. They never take a step back, and they never abandon their master. 
Even in relative peace, the other Seraphon have to approach Slan with care, for more than one over-eager skink has been cut in half by a single blow from a Saurus guard. <laughs> you know, don't be too eager of a messenger. Um, nope. Saurus guard don't rise in cohorts in the, corning, in the spawning pools. Instead, as casualties occur amongst the ranks of the Guardians, new warriors are spawned in ones and twos. So, essentially, there's always some Saurus guard, and as more are needed. They are spawned as needed instead of spawning a whole new set of Saurus Guard. Uh, they silently make their way to the Ziggurat Temple, take up their arms and, ar- arms and armor without a word, and then fall into rank as if they've been there for decades. Their scales are incredibly thick, and they are masters of defensive warfare, being almost invulnerable when using their shields in concert. Uh, the guardians of Starmaster Lumku once locked their shields together into a great dome, weathering the heavy tread of a titanic cornate warlord known as the Brazen Gargan, essentially stopping him from stepping on the slant they were protecting. Which is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are also charged with watching over the most sacred areas of Seraphon Ziggurats and Temple Cities, concentrations of realm stones, scrying chambers with astromantic technology, shrines of the old ones are all protected by a cohort of tireless Saurus guards, the dust of decades covering their immobile bodies. At the first sign of intruders, they move with shocking speed, statues given life to swiftly and efficiently dismantle their prey. That's a great image as well. Like, oh, look at all these old lizard statues, and then you touch the wrong thing, and they all immediately go for you. Um, and then we have the Saurus Knights. They are the premier shock troops of the Seraphon, skilled cavalry, well-versed in a wide array of military doctrines. Beneath icons in the shape of coiling serpents, they ride into battle with predatory eagerness. Those who survive the initial impact are soon trampled by them in passing. Uh, their mounts are known as cold ones. They are these fer- fierce territorial beasts that are cunning and deadly in battle. When left to their own devices, cold ones are foul-tempered and willful. Even the starborn ones are wont to revert to primal instincts at random, snapping at Seraphon who get too close and eating unfortunate skinks. And if a pack of cold ones makes its way into a temple city or a ship, it can cause trouble basically until Saurus Knights show up to take charge of them. <laughs> the knights are a specialist subspecies considered to be blessed by the old one, widely known as Itzel, the father of, father of beasts. They, spe- they possess specially adapted dew claws that allow them to direct their steeds even while fighting and have a natural affinity with wild creatures. Under the domineering will of a Saurus Knight, a cold one turns from a dangerous predator into a focused engine of destruction. Pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, very cool indeed. Right, okay, let's move on to the priests. Uh, So we've got the Skink Star Seers. So these are the best Skink spellcasters that have a very strong connection to the magic of Zeer, even better than most in their storm hosts, not that they would like to hear that. Um, these star seers predict uh, cosmic events. Uh, they sort of make out the patterns of stars and their various meanings and things like that, and how to take down the enemies of the Seraphon, obviously, most importantly. Mm. So, they yeah. me- so many of them serve one slan, uh, who obviously helps contribute to their power and relays predictions. Um, and then in turn, they tell that to the lower leaders of the Seraphon. Um, you'll notice this, that certain ones serve the one above them, as you would imagine. Um, so they're very revered by the Seraphon in general, in- including the Saurus, uh, due to their sort of top ranking in the Skink priesthood. Uh, they rule over various districts or, or fleet ships, for example, but their main role is fashioning uh, Celestite, uh, using, which they use to create their floating thrones which is a smaller version of the slan uh, throne uh, which means they often get mistaken for slan sometimes um, <laughs> which 
inadvertently they actually don't try to discourage because in turn that mm. means they may end up sacrificing themselves if they go yes i'm a i'm a mm. big slan over here look at my floaty throne and then obviously get killed and then obviously it helps protect the slan themselves um you've got the star priest so often a spawning pool will produce just a single skink um but often with a lot of magical sk- uh, power and skill and then in turn if they show that off they will then join the star priests so their link to the winds of magic is sort of basically built into them uh, and then obviously in turn it's honed by the star seers so again like i said a, minute, a second ago they a lot of them will serve a single star seer uh, or if they're very promising they will actually serve a slan directly um the best of their kind will uh, you know are good at dealing with non-seraphon and obviously the fangs of sotek will use them as ambassadors so they're you know they're very good at communicating with the other races uh they're more pre sorry more proactive than star seers who like to contemplate because obviously that's part of their job um so they'll use like this you know celestial lightning blasts and using starlights to you know disrupt uh, disrupt uh, enemy formations uh, they carry serpent staffs which are the, basically these techno arcane relics uh, channeling the the twin headed serpent from the heavens uh, basically coating their weapons and obviously the ones uh, around them with deadly venom that can cause convulsions and other such lovely things uh, you've got the skink priests uh, so the skink priesthood basically runs seraphon life day to day roughly because obviously the slan are busy the source of basically focusing on war so that's their sort of role in sort of seraphon life uh and in turn several of them will serve a star priest uh generally passing the master's message to the seraphon hordes in the temple cities and other such areas um so they're responsible for several skink divisions uh which have a lot of competition between them like who can raise the best monument and things like that uh Mm -hmm. they also run skink cohorts in battle similar to a skink chief but concentrating on the, the morale side of the of things and you know the skinks underneath them uh they will perform celestial rituals that they leave learnt from the star priests because they've got no innate magic power um which leads to the skinks creating subcults uh venerating things like god beasts or such like uh this is tolerated by the slan because if it basically if it keeps them focused then it doesn't interfere with the great plan so you know win-win uh lastly mm. they provide the most common link from skinks to the old ones because they basically their their staff of office can you know shoot bolts and it's obviously that old sort of technology uh lastly we've got the oracles so these are basically the strangest of the skink subbreeds uh they're created when the slan gets mad literally magically involved in the spawning pool um with the skink crawling out with a forked tail which is basically a great omen from the old ones. Uh, only happens once every a thousand years or so. Uh, they're quite impassive. They're quite distant, um, but they can become truly animated behind their gold mask when the when the slan influence them. Uh, basically, their eyes roll back into their head. They're throthing at the mouth, you know, babbling, um, which is basically recorded by nearby priests on tablets. And so, you know, because it's basically coming up with predictions and uh, mm-hmm. such like. Hence, why they're called oracles. Um, such a strong connection with the slan um leads to you know that basically where power can be channeled from any distance so no matter where the slan is no matter where the oracle is the slan can you know basically put the magic through them uh, but they're also decent wizards by themselves who they basically specialize in dealing with enemy magic so they're but they're basically about dispelling magic um and obviously yeah. carrying artifacts that help with that um they're very become as we know from the models uh they're very tied to troglodons or otherwise known as pale death um you know troglodons are these foul beasts capable of spitting like toxic streams uh despite being blind they've got very good 
you know, hearing and smell. Uh, and they're known for sort of hanging in the depths of temple ships or swamps that are near temple cities. They're sort of quite a loner type creature, but mm. they have like a, a common link with each other because basically they both have twin pronged tails, um, which yeah. in turn has led to the oracles having a, you know, a very good way of taming these creatures and riding them into sort of vital missions, you know, guiding them with their long range sight. So yeah, that's all the priests. Cool. All right. We'll get into hunting packs. We'll start off with skinks. Skinks are the largest part of Seraphon society, shorter than a Dwarden. They are quick, clever, and highly vocal, even capable of learning the languages of other races. They have inherent dexterity, which allows them to excel in the roles of artisans, menial laborers, and scribes. They oversee expansion of temple cities and maintain the old one's technological artifacts. They don't exactly know how these devices work, but that doesn't concern them. Their commitment is absolute, and the command of the slant is justification enough to fix anything, do any task. <laughs> they're physically frail, so they're not naturally confident warriors. If they're desperate, they will selflessly throw themselves into melee, but most seek to avoid physical confrontation. Uh, these skittish tendencies are more pronounced in coalesced skinks, as the pure light of Azur dims within them. Ever cunning, they've of course turned this to their advantages. They are excellent skirmishers, preferring to engage at range with celestite javelins or uh, bolt spitters venomous darts, which have less stopping power but can go considerable distances with a single powerful breath. Uh, if they are forced to engage in melee combat, they swarm in these great masses and seek to pull down their opponents under the weight of snapping jaws and small but deadly clubs, their spirit bolstered by the invocations of their priestly leaders. There are many subspecies of skink with their own unique qualities, each vital for the great plan, but the most infamous are the chameleon skinks. They have a unique ability to reduce their body to little more than formless shadow, blending in as they scout ahead of the war hosts and shower enemies with blow darts coated in deadly poison. The source of their unique talents is unclear, but many potential explanations are spread throughout skinkdom. Ah, so the skinks are talking among themselves about why chameleon skinks are like that, essentially. <laughs> um... Some whisper that the first temple ships to spawn chameleons didn't sail amongst Azir, but instead inside the penumbral gloom of Ulgu, and during that time the power of the shadows seeped into the fleet's spawning pool. The chameleons have proved their worth as assassins, fell in chaos lords, soulblight nobles, megabosses, and champions of Sigmar with poison darts. One of the many duties for skinks is to rear reptilian beasts that supplement the bipedal seraphon. Uh, there are all manner of uses for the various beasts hatching from eggs uh, that are incubated by the curious technology of the old ones, but many are herded into these deadly packs. They move in herds, it's true. Um, <laughs> and of course, because these beasts are partially infused with the light of Azir, they can be teleported across the realms by the slan and slowly coalesce into physical forms, just like the other Seraphons. Razodon are predatory reptiles with rows of sharp spines covering their backs, and with powerful muscle spasms, they can unleash these missiles with incredible force. A significantly uh, sufficiently enraged Razodon can fill the air with a storm of spines, and more than one unlucky skink handler has been pincushioned for their trouble after prodding a, tank a cantankerous beast. Instinctively territorial, Razodons have a knack for waiting until just the right moment to let loose their barrage, and a pack of the creatures working in concert can shred even the most determined enemy charge. We also have Salamanders. They are hideous to behold in their death dealing. Uh, they have fleshy sacks on their neck that belch out gouts of acid that ignites into flames on contact with the air, so if it hits you, you're on fire and covered with acid which is the worst possible combination <laughs> as armor and flesh 
Armor and flesh melts away like hot wax, which is a disturbing imagery, thanks, Games Workshop. <laughs> uh, and, of course, these same fluids drip out of the salamander's jaw, so if you get bitten by one, it starts little spot fires on you that burn an acid away at you. Uh, they're used by Seraphon to guard their flanks or to storm the strong points of enemy lines. Even the sturdiest fortifications can be melted down while warriors who survive the initial onslaught find that uh, little bits of fire just keep burning away at them. And a lot of Akshi tribes revere salamanders as primal fire spirits. Uh, some point a relationship between the salamanders and the god-beast Vulcatrix, which was slain by Grimnir. It seems implausible, given the celestial nature of the Seraphon, but Fire Slayer trophy vaults have skeletal remains resembling salamanders, a fact suggesting that the Seraphon have been active in the realms for far longer than most would suspect. Dun-dun-dun. Right, okay, then we got Predatory Fury. So let's start with the Pterodon Riders. So these swoop across the battlefield with leathery wings, uh, which means they can glide for days if they hit uh, you know, certain currents. Uh, targeting prey, letting out a you know horrible scream and diving towards them with uh, razor sharp teeth, you know leaving energy trails behind them. Um, skink riders themselves are used as scouts and rather than not get into close combat, obviously uh, using speedy strikes with their sort of favoured weapons, which are generally the javelins or uh, sun leech bowlers, which are basically detonating sun bugs in a sling. If I had to <laughs> summarise it, um, pterodons uh, can carry also a, a heavy load on with their back legs, so they will unleash a meteorite with uh, azurite sigils to drop onto their enemy, which is very cool. Uh, you got the ripodactyl riders, so very similar, but these are basically avian predators that attack with savagery, no matter what size. Uh, you know, <laughs> raging without warning. Uh, the riders are known as Braves. The, they're basically the daredevils of their kind, uh, armed with uh, moonstar. Uh, moon Moonstone spears, uh, the talons and the fury of the beast are the real dangerous part, naturally. Uh, Seraphon wizards will conjure up uh, what's known as blot toads. Um, basically, these drive the river dactyl into rage. And so there you go. Yep, go go put some toads on them and down will come the river dactyls. Um, uh, so we've got the uh, Croxagor. So these have got immense strength and twice about twice the height of a man. Uh, they've got scales like Sigmarite and jaws that uh, take out the greatest of monsters. A cohort can tie up an enemy flank by itself. They're that good. Uh, they're respected by the Saurus because obviously because of their power, but also how they've expanded the temple cities. But they also... Uh, funny enough, have a really close relationship with skinks, uh, doing what they can for them, often fighting together in battle. They've just got a real good relationship. Uh, and lastly, you've got the, uh, the various uh, skink chiefs. So these are basically the largest, strongest, or most different of the uh, skinks um, can end up becoming a chief. Um, they're basically used to coordinate sort of the skink part of the army, in contrast to the skink priests, who basically the upper part of the priesthood is about in unleashing magic and the lower is about inspiring the skinks um actually talking of inspiration uh they're known for inspiring fellow skinks on the battlefield whilst riding their winged mounts uh, often multiple chiefs will serve a priest uh, basically executing their plans through war uh, with a skilled chief sometimes running an army especially if the great plan is too complicated for the saurus because they're quite single-minded uh their mount has a way of showing their personality and role so basically pterodon chiefs or known as masters of the skies are the sort of basically the cautious ones that are used for scouting and sort of dive bombing whereas the ripodactyl chiefs are the aggressive chiefs you know doing sort of gung-ho hit and run tactics you know showing bravado which is uh, not a common trait for the seraphon and often they'll be the first of the army to get stuck in 
So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's them. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll go on to the Wrath of the Cosmos. Uh, so these are the bigger war beasts. So we'll start off with Stegodons. These are titanic quadrupeds covered in thick scales with a prominent head crest and a series of lethally sharp horns. Their mammoth bulk is sustained by an omnivorous diet. They are capable of eating just about anything on their path and extracting some kind of nutrition from it. They're, once they're on the move, as they can keep going basically forever as long as they have uh, enough opportunities to eat as they walk. There is at least one ogre war tribe that worships the horn feast as scaly avatars of Gorka Morka, following their stompy paths through the jungle depths and devouring anything the Stegodon leaves behind. Uh... Under normal circumstances, Stegodons are one of the more docile creatures uh, found in the company of the Seraphon. They've usually been used as beasts of burden, working alongside Croxicore and Skinks to transport construction materials and flatten areas of land to build roads and temples. Most constellations have many Stegodon eggs stored away within their ziggurats, but the greatest sporting pools are also capable of producing fully grown Stegodon instantly with enough power. And Stegodon producing this way are very closely linked to Azir, burning with celestial energy and appearing with constellations pre-marked onto their hides. Uh, despite their natural lack of aggression, they do react violently when threatened, and the Seraphon take advantage of this by tying giant howders onto their backs and crewing them with skinks that have a close bond with the Stegodon. From up high, they hurl javelins and otherwise crew uh, skystreak bows and flame-belching devices known as sunfire throwers atop the Stegodon's howder. Uh, but the Stegodon itself is, of course, the greatest danger to opponents. When in danger, its typical response is to lower its head and charge, trusting in its bulk to destroy anything in its path. When the Great Plan calls for a city to be stomped flat or a foe to be utterly eradicated, a Star Master constructs their war host around the mightiest of war beasts. Led by Asaurus Oldblood on Carnosaur, Skink Chiefs on Stegodons are central to uh, corral the hunting packs and stampedes of titanic jungle beasts. Uh... We also have the Engines of the Gods. Uh, the Great Plan of the Old Ones is impossibly vast in scale, so there's lots of artifacts that we don't super know how they work or 100% what they do. Uh, but the Engines of the Gods aren't this kind of lost treasure. They are still able to be used. It's just a little unpredictable. Um, these Engines are carried on the backs of the oldest Stegodon because they're the only ones with the correct temperament to bear relics of the Old Ones. And when a member of the Skink Priesthood depresses the glowing glyph plaques in a correct sequence, the power locked within the engine is unleashed. The Seraphon, if they ever understood how these things work, definitely don't now. So it's uh, a little uncertain as to what's going to happen. Enemies could be torn apart by lightning or just erased from existence as the laws of nature are rewritten around them. Sometimes Seraphon nearby have time reversed and their wounds knit back together, or occasionally, Seraphon that haven't been spawned yet appear summoned from the heavens. On occasion, the universe itself begins to quake around the engine as the laws of physics uh, begin to rebel violently against the engine's existence. Um, <laughs> this has sort of made them. This has made them weapons of last resort, understandably so. Uh, unless, of course, you're from the Thunder Lizard or Tepox Breath constellation, who have a ton of these things and love using them, uh, because of course they do. <laughs> um, and the other big war beast is the Bastilodon. Uh, through the deepest jungle, these walking fortresses lumber. Few creatures can rival them in sheer resilience. They are covered in thick shield scales as hard as Sigmite, and their skin is closer to bone than flesh. 
Blows capable of sundering rune-forged armor leave only minor dents, while cursed blades and sharp glaives snap on impact. Their wield is subsequently bludgeoned into pieces with the heavy bone club at the tip of a Bastilodon's tail. Even the Nighthorn's spectral blades can't really harm a Bastilodon, because inside their bodies, Azirian energy is tightly compacted to protect its soul against any kind of strike. Legends of their imperviousness have spread, and more than one canny Carajon captain has made a lot of profit dealing in genuine Bastilodon-scale plate armor. <laughs> <laughs> their only real weakness is their slow speed, because they are weighed down by these endless layers of defense. Uh, with this ponderous gate, they are typically employed as living war machines, usually mounted with a solar engine, basically this this thing that can focus beams of celestial energy that are particularly dangerous to the demons of chaos. The excess heat from these weapons would normally render them very dangerous for any war beast to carry, but of course, the Bastilodon doesn't really care. <laughs> more <laughs> mysterious, but no less deadly, is the Ark of Sotek, which is the most terrifying thing in this entire book, because... It's a miniature realm gate connected to infinitely deep serpent pits found in <laughs> Seraphon temples. So essentially, when the Ark is activated, these snakes are just teleported into the Ark and spill out of it onto the ground around the Bastilodon. <laughs> <laughs> um, the serpents then begin swarming towards the enemy, and even the greatest monsters and champions are soon laid low by the poisons injected into them by these countless fights. Yeah, it's it's just a bunch of pipes on top of the Bastilodon that occasionally vomit out snakes. It's awful. I love it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And that that brings us to the end of um end of what's up with the Seraphon now. We've been yeah. pretty well updated. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with this. Problem. We're there. We've done it. Mm. Yeah. No, I think they're in a, I think they're in a good spot now. They've sort of uh, mm. put them in a, a rightful place. Like I said, they've sort of yeah. tied up the old lore, but obviously introduced mm. why they're in the mortal realms. And I like the fact you've yeah. got the Starborn and the Coalesce. That makes sense, both from a lore mm. and a rules perspective. So, no, I think I think they've done really well. And they've not, like we said earlier, it doesn't feel like they've put too much waffle in there. Like, it's nice, concise yeah. lore. Like, yeah. yeah, this is why they're here. This is what they do. That's what they're here for. They're back, baby. Yeah. Dinos are back. So. Dinosaurs. They're back. <laughs> New York City. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that's, that's this episode. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, so it's always, uh, cool talking about factions like this. I've been dying to speak oh, about yeah. the Seraphon. So no, it's really Super cool to, to do these. Um, <laughs> so Cameron, where can people find mm. you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at night underscore twin. That's night without a K. Uh, come join in me posting pictures of cute cats and yelling at my government for not responding to the coronavirus epidemic in a sufficient <laughs> manner. Um, I get paid. I'm a contract worker, but I get paid time off. Shut the schools down. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll be fine. Uh, mm-hmm. You can also find me on Instagram at realm underscore and underscore ruin. Uh, where I post hobby updates as as and when I remember that I have an Instagram. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a living. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's me, Matthew. Where can we find yourself and indeed this wonderful podcast? Well, you can find me and this wonderful podcast on Twitter. You can find me at Ninja Badger Seven, and you can find our podcast at Realm and Ruin. That is our main social media outlet where we show off all the cool stuff that we're trying to do and all the news and gubbins and such like so yeah check us out on there um and yeah so 
that's the end of this episode. Uh, looking forward to the next one, the big five zero. Um, and mm. stay safe out there, everyone. Do your yes. best. I know it's you know unsure times at the moment, but uh, you know keep it real. Mm. Um, and as always, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Ta-ra. 